Hello, hello. Welcome to episode three of the Eddie Conversation podcast. My name is Eddie V. Hill, and I am your host. Uh, this week, the extended conversation I will be having is kind of uh, is kind of a nerd out on indie filmmaking. Um, so just a heads up on that. We dive into some pretty nitty gritty nuance there. Uh, so without further ado, just remember you can find this conversation as well in video form on my YouTube by searching the Eddie Conversation podcast. But yeah, episode three featuring Avid Egbali. <laughs> All right, so we, yeah, we'll jump right into it. For sure. Thanks for hosting and uh, coming on. Absolutely. Thank yeah. you for actually like texting me about this. I was very happy to see your text and like to be part of it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. So you are Avid Egbali? Yeah. Am I pronouncing that? Right? That is correct, Avid Egbali. I got a second part to my name that I didn't learn until I was in eighth grade, mm -hmm. how to spell it. So I just kind of gave up on using it. Only on like federal okay. documents. Do you want to do you want to share what it is? It's Gayazi, so it's really Avid Egbali Gayazi. Nice. But no one's gonna like remember that. So you just yeah, because I noticed too on your socials that you even switched to just Avid E. Yeah, I, I, oh. I I'm using it as my like my email handle, which is like Avid E Film. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, because I just realized like a simplicity to it is is key, um, which I understand why like artists like change their names and shit like that it all it all makes sense yeah. like you want to leave a mem memorable uh resonance essentially for sure for yeah sure. so i guess um i'll do a little little intro on you see i i see you okay. as filmmaker i've experienced um a few sets with you as the director yeah and uh you also do other stuff like you're uh you do it all so you've ad'd you mm -hmm. Yeah, you do. But yeah, how would you? What? How do you normally introduce yourself when when people are meeting you for the first time? I would say filmmaker is the best umbrella. Okay. Because keeping, keeping it general, yeah, I think, um, it. I think the caliber that I understand things is like a Renaissance man, where you know I could understand all the aspects of what it goes into making a movie. Where I want to really just focus and hone in on the craft of directing is my main thing, yeah. but to to do that you really got to know everything as well, or it's best to at least. Um, so when I say like filmmaker, I kind of like try to leave it at that. Nowadays we're like saying content creators, and I say content creator and logistical yeah. producer. So like more people that aren't in film, but like are like ad agencies or like commercials or interviews, like cor corporate corporations essentially. Yeah. Like they they I think resonate with those labels better. Then if you're like, oh, I'm a director. So I feel like you got to change it up, essentially, depending on who you're talking to. So you're to. saying content creator and logistical producer, is that mm -hmm. what you said? Yeah. Okay. I do put the word creative in front of that, but sometimes <laughs> that's getting over my head. I don't yeah. really feel creative. Content creator to me, what, what do I think about? When, you think, when I think about content, I think about... Instagram? In, like, yeah, I guess like social media, YouTube, mm -hmm. and you're just trying to like have stuff so you can consistently be posting out yeah putting stuff up versus yeah. like so it's almost more like quantity like more quantity mindset on content totally and I, the opposite of what I, when you say quantity i think of quality and we're worth talking about like film directing i think we really are looking for quality like there's more of a tease on wanting to be like perfect with what you're creating and there feels more of an attachment to it than when you're like doing content creation for like a youtuber you're just kind of trying to do that job as best as you can, 
but at the same time, it's not the end of the world if nothing goes exactly like how yeah, you, yeah. you planned gotta, it. Just got to get something in there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But um, one thing, all right, so I've, I've, I, was, I was excited to talk to you because I feel like we get to, I haven't had the chance to, because I mean, this, this is, we're st still in the early phases of this, of this Eddie conversation podcast. For sure, yeah, yeah. And I haven't had the chance to, to completely nerd out on a film yet, so. Now, when you say nerd out on film, it sends chills down my spine because I, I feel like I'm not a film buff. Oh, no, no, no. And no. I don't know movies that much. I don't either. I just mean like more, more, I feel like I guess, I guess it's more for the listener to know where yeah. we might be going. It's like, oh, it might be more film centric on the, the nitty gritty of what production's like. For or sure. Pre or yeah. The creative vision, like the, just more like that than than the surface level. Yeah, actually, you bringing that point up makes me think of something that I got to, I like struggled with, considering like the slight insecurity of me not knowing that many movies, is the difference between a film buff and a filmmaker, because I think that mm -hmm. there is like a, you could definitely be both. I'm not saying you can't be one or the other, but there is a difference between someone who actually knows how to make the movie or someone who just knows fun facts about the film and. Uh, like story of the film and all, all the other stuff that is I think really important to know but the execution is kind of like I think where I started to get my like love for the for the art was like the, the making of it yeah and that's I mean we definitely relate in that sense a lot yeah well I guess we can even talk about you and your let, let's jump into let's, into the Avine story a little bit okay uh, for sure let's get the background on I, I guess you mentioned directing is kind of is is the dream. You're kind of sharpening sharpening all the tools to kind of make you a better director. In yeah, the end. yeah. I'm in the same boat with that too. Yeah. So, yay. <laughs> no, I, I you 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 during this time of getting to work on your feature, uh, that was actually one of one of the biggest learning curves for me. Mm. I mean, to to actually see the stuff that you've been working on, and you've been you've been doing it really independently for like a long time. Like a, you're at least from how people talked about you from Reno, yeah. of like how you organized your community with that. Like that, to be honest, like that was where I was more uh, started to like see you like as an inspiration. Like like look, looked up to you more in that sense. I even thought like when I do my feature film, like I kind of want you to produce it. Like gotcha. we'll, definitely we'll figure out monetary. We'll, we'll have you covered with that. But it was one of those things where I I think you executed it so well. Considering the scale of where we're at with it, like mm -hmm. it, it ended up being where I think you focus on all the right elements that needed to be focused on in filmmaking and ignored all of the fancy showing off bullshit. I think, right, right. Um, which is unfortunately, I think when I got into it, I got into it with the idea that you need a red camera on set, the idea that you need all these fancy bullshit things. And I think what you honed in better when I got to see you work was more on the story, more on the actress. Uh, and then as far as like the, the camera stuff goes, you had full trust in Connor. Mm -hmm. uh, let Connor do his thing. I, and I noticed the small adjustments you made, and I think that those were actually great adjustments. Like you weren't over um, overbearing on him. You were kind of making it like stylistic at points. Right. Like the um, under the table when we were at Cat's house filming under the table with the blue stuff. Like I, was, I loved how that actually like ended up playing out. And added production for sure, production value. Yeah, no, it's a yeah. I guess like that's to comment on that a little bit. Thank you. For yeah, kind of words. absolutely. I appreciate absolutely. it. 
But no, I mean, I mean, I was only able to do those things, make those decisions because of the exploration and so many other, like kind of like, like what you were saying was, or what I was saying that you were saying was, uh, right, was really understanding what the DP does and what what they do, and and I don't really see much value in bringing people on that you don't trust anyway. So totally, it's, it's kind of it's, like, and that's a discovery of its own. Like that's yeah. a learning process yeah. going through it. But but back to you really quick. So, yeah, I love so, it. So, the thing that, all right, so I'm always curious about where where people come from and why they're pursuing the things they pursue and, and that sure. kind of stuff. So uh, you've been pursuing like when did when did Film. being a director hit your brain and I guess before that you what was your experience with film before that? Um, I got cut from the basketball team when I was in high school. And so that opened up a period, and they just put me in a film class. Um, I took that before, I took, a, I took, my exposure to film was like through a friend uh, whose brother was a producer. At the time, he, the brother was also working as a PA, but um, my introduction to it through this friend was through editing. So I got to see like iMovie, I think that was the beginning of it, and then from iMovie when I, that was like a background of it, but then as soon as I took that film class, they taught us Final Cut Pro. Uh, this was right when Seven was leaving and X was becoming the thing. Okay. And I remember like getting that introduction to it, where now I get to be on set and I'll get to talk to people about like, you know, nerd out when you say I know Final Cut Pro Seven. They tend to give you more respect than if you say I know Final Cut Pro X, because okay. they I don't know it's one of those things. Sure, sure. But that was kind of where the start happened, um, and it was through taking that film class, learning how to edit that I started to kind of see filmmaking as like, um, as a great release for myself, just because I never thought, like this, the time that I saw two images put adjacent to each other and having it live, mm -hmm. like if it was, it was very like, it sent chills down my spine because I was like, holy shit, like this is, this looks like a movie. <laughs> like just as simple as like a character opening a door, walking through it and then cutting to him walking into the room. I was like, that, that's, that works. That's magic. Yeah, 100%. And, um, that kind of made me understand and work backwards from editing to learning cinematography because that was kind of what I wanted to do even before directing was uh, DP stuff. And then I realized it was Donald Turner when I saw him work and I was like, man, I don't really think I want to do this. This is not exactly what I thought DP job was. And then that's when directing became a little bit more interesting to me. And it was through working with Mikey Murphy that like I really decided to like pursue it, pursue the directing world. And how recent was that? How, how that was my senior. That happened my senior year of college. Oh, I'm sorry. That happened like my junior year of college. Um, so that was back in 2017. All right. So through so through high school up until you said senior year of college. Yeah. You were kind of you were kind of feeling stuff out and and. Ex exploring it, yeah. I mean, at that time, by that time, I had already created my first short film where I had Frankie Manis be the lead actor in it, mm -hmm. and it was called The yeah. Mistake, which has a lot of mistakes in the movie because I didn't know how to make a movie. But that was like where I did the. That was where I did everything. You know, the directing, the DP, like uh, had someone had hired someone to do sound. But that was a project where I would say um, was my film school without a doubt because after that, I think I tackled a lot more projects and. I entered the music video world mm -hmm. after that project. I realized since I understand camera and editing, I could execute a little bit of projects where I get to put myself as a director if I just am doing these music videos. Yeah. Um, that then led into 
you know, really understanding story and wanting to be a storyteller, which kind of now more, more what I want to do more than even directing is be a writer. But I struggle with, you know, English is my second language and I don't have the strongest vocabulary skills. Um, however, I have emotional intuition. And that is what I'm trying to really put my faith in to, be, to being a good writer is that. Because everything else I know I could study and learn. Um, but being a writer, I think, is like the new, the new aim for me. You know, writer, director, Yeah, because you want to write stuff for you to make, like, yeah. make and direct. Yeah. Yeah, and that kind of deepens your... Because, I, mean, I mean, I also love writing. Yeah. And, and I feel like as a director... I, I'm trying to also sharpen my writing skills because if you become a better storyteller, storyteller on the front end, then you just sit with the you sit with the story more longer, and by the time you're on set doing the director stuff, you're just like ingrained in you and you just, you just live with it. A hundred percent. I yeah. think you need to find the most amount of integrity in your story, and you do that with kind of being the writer and and studying the material so well. Because the idea of directing it is, you're going to be throwing challenges with you, where you're going to, you're, it's going to be putting you into questioning that story, that integrity for that story, and you got to be so on top of it that with all these new opinions coming in, you have to like go through a filter process to know which one is serving the integrity of that story. Right. Yeah, it's what yeah. what actually matters in this scene. It's not it's not as a character walking in. Is that the importantness I know? It's right. like what like what am I trying to get here? Exactly. Yeah, which exactly. Is, which is tough. It's tough to Yeah. dig into what you want. Like it, that's hard. It comes through the practice and I'm learning that. Like Bated Breath is my second mm -hmm. short film. Um, and I'm proud of it in the sense that it's the best work I've done thus far. But I know that there's more to come from this. And what, I, what I'm letting myself understand is I only was able to make Bated Breath be the best so far because of all the, the practice I got to do beforehand. So now I'm just really trying to now, going back to that quality and, and quantity conversation, I'm in this place where I want to maximize on quantity of projects because I think that that would be the most, like I could be a sponge and absorb all of that so that when I actually do a, a, a project that I'm deeply passionate about, that it's like really close to me, yeah. I could actually, you know, master quality yeah, more than the quantity. You put the, you put the reps in in preparation. Right, the reps. Versus, good way versus doing your practice on the, on the real thing, which is yeah. too much pressure. It's too much. Yeah, when we did um, Cat's film, uh, when we shot in her cabin, that was, I think, the first time that I got to ever work with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I literally, like, took that project because I said to myself, I need to practice for bated breath. Like, I need to get used to this. And even that, I, so technically, for before bated breath, like, that was, like, one practice of a film that I got. Like, now looking back at it, I wish I did, like, three or four more mm -hmm. um, just to even hone it in. But, you know, for the future, now we know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, yeah, I guess we can, I don't know. You brought up so many things we can talk about here. Oh, dude, I have a list on my phone. I have five topics <laughs> no, no, on my no, phone that are, sure. like, all over the place with so film. <laughs> I, I wanted to talk about... Yeah. Right, okay, we got baited breath. Okay, okay. I, ex I was able to experience... I was on set with you for baited breath. Yeah. And for Cat's film. Right, right. Um, what I, what I want to start with, actually, because I feel like... I'm really curious to, to know what you... What you're taking away from these experiences, but it's the music, it's the music videos. 
because I, I, for my research for this, I did look through all your, I, I did some research and digging. Oh, I love you. <laughs> I love that you do homework. <laughs> so you did, on your website, you have seven music videos listed. Mm -hmm. The first one dropped on YouTube three years ago. So since, in those three years since, yeah, seven videos. And I kind of, you know, just to refresh, cause I've seen some of them before already. I just want to like, see some sort of like growth pattern sure. on like, all right, where do you start? What kind of stuff is introducing and that, that kind of yeah. thing. So what, what, what can you recall taking from making music videos and, and taking that into like the narrative stuff or how do you approach story mm. music versus, cause I don't, yeah, I'm, dude, I'll be honest with you. I got to just work with this really talented director who's done things for GEZ, Tyga, and she lives in the UK right now. And this last music video that I did that was her AD, uh, she, was eight, she was directing it on WhatsApp. So she was telling me what to tell everyone through WhatsApp, voice messages, FaceTime, all the things that WhatsApp, WhatsApp offers, we were utilizing in order to communicate on executing the, the, the vision for the music video. Um, I would say that was the most, like, I wish I got that at an so, earlier stage. So what was your position on that, technically, then? I, w I was an, she, she definitely said AD. When she told me the project, she said, I need a co-director. Yeah, yeah. And, I th and at this point, we're so comfortable where I'm editing the project now, too. Um, so it's, Wait, so you're talking about the most recent one, or your first one? My most recent one. Okay. I'm kind right. of working backwards here. Gotcha, gotcha. <laughs> my most recent one, because, again, it wasn't me directing it, but it was just this intimate relationship with a music video director and I got to see her work exactly like how I do not work. Mm -hmm. um, and what I learned from her that I wanted to apply onto like every project from now on is to master the amount of references to convey my vision. And I think that that is what I lacked. Even in the music video world, I lacked that. And even in the narrative world, I lacked that, is not having enough references and I'm not, like I said, English is my second language, so I'm not having the best verbal usage of words to be ex explaining things to people. So much easier to show a reference. And, you know, she, she was in the UK and we were directing this music video, and it was all because I got to show a photo to the people and they were able to see, okay, I got, I got that idea. And the communication was yeah, delivered. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's like the main thing that I think I'm learning as a director, regardless of where you are, in which, in which medium of filmmaking you're doing, music videos, commercials, or even narrative, it's like you have to convey the message to, to the people you're working with. And sometimes, and most of the time, the best way to do that is a reference. Um, and that's kind of like what I wish I kind of started off with in the beginning stages. I'll give you a thought I have on references. Yeah. Because <laughs> like, okay. Because I'm, I'm in a... I, for whatever reason, I have this resistance to references okay. when I direct. Yeah. Because I, I don't know, I don't know, as a director, people like to ask you for references. Yeah. And it's a nice, I feel like it's a, I don't like the shortcutty feeling of a reference photo. Yeah. Or like a reference clip, because I, I don't want to show an actor Oh, here's, to mimic. Here's here's like a tone that I like. Yeah. What this character is doing. Yeah. That I'm kind of kind of basing my direction for you on. Yeah. It's like, because now I don't want them to copy what that actor is doing. Or it's like, no, no, no. Like this is my thing. It's going to be different than that. Yeah. So I don't even want you to see it. Or like a DP's. I don't know. I I think it's I think it's a fault 
I don't know about a fault. I think it's me not being super clear on what I want the vision to be in the first place. So maybe I'm just having trouble finding a reference to communicate it. But it kind of comes back to you, you saying that I trusted Connor on as a DP. It's like I have a base idea of what I want, and I'm trusting you to know what looks best for that emotion or that yeah, kind of moment. Yeah, right, right. And that collaboration coming together to find the reference versus me just saying, make it look like this. So for no... So I'm sure there's like some sort of balance in there where a reference can streamline yeah. the communication thing. Mm -hmm. But for whatever reason, I have a hard time finding references that demonstrate what I'm actually thinking too. So it's kind of me being lazy and wanting to yeah. really lean into the collaboration. Um, and, I, and I think that the mindset that you just explained was kind of what I had when I was like not having references. I, I felt the exact same way. Um, I feel I feel like what you said that there has to be a balance. There totally does, and that's what I'm learning. Like everything is like you need you you kind of have to have everything to, to be to a certain degree, right? Like your collaboration with Connor needs to be to a certain degree before you kind of like get give your input in. Like um, having a reference needs to be to a certain degree so that you can let the discovery process be alive in its own form too. Um, and I'm learning that just kind of like how you mentioned. I think this conversation is aiming it better for me to understand the give and take, like the tug of war between the our artistry of discovering it and the collaboration, and then also letting someone have aim in some idea of what you want to be doing with showing a reference. Right. I think that if we could, like as filmmakers, master the, these two forms of communicating and working with people, it will make uh, it will make it just easier to. Uh, to make to make stuff, it'll, it'll be easier to find flow, rhythm, and trust between people as your team to make the vision come true. Right. No, for sure. I think that's yeah. nicely put. So, cool. <laughs> so back to your so all right. So back to your your story about, yeah. about streamlining. So you're you are on the set, witnessing this director use the reference book because she's because she's not there. So she's yeah. Gotta, she's got to succinctly communicates a message through you in mm -hmm. a way where you, there's no telephone, right? Where it's yeah. not like, oh, she said this. It's like, oh, here's an image that she sent. So, yeah. So you got that from that experience. Yeah. I, honestly, man, I got to tell you, it was like it was like a textbook. The, like my WhatsApp thread with this lady yeah, yeah. is like a textbook of just material that I think filmmakers could read and understand what it means to make a, make a music video. The beauty of it was if I didn't understand it, I just got to reread it to, to the point of where then I could comprehend what it was saying um, versus, you know, having that, like, gut to tell the director, can you repeat that again? Like, you kind of don't want a director to necessarily repeat things multiple times. Right. But having it be on a phone, I didn't have to, like, say, can you repeat that? I just had to reread the sentence that she said and then try to understand it. So I felt like there was less pressure of me having some fear of just the, the hierarchy of the set necessarily. It, it was just easier for me to like be able to pick it up and um, yeah, and do it. I mean, that was, that was like a wonderful experience, I gotta say. I, I, it was unexpected too. I, I DM'd her on Instagram and that's how we connected. Oh, nice. <laughs> Instagram really helped out nice. really, really well. For sure. Yeah. How do you feel about, well, how do you feel about Directing music because how many how many music videos have you directed 
The, it, well, I'll, I'll, did I say seven? The seven that are on the site, and then right now I have three in post mm -hmm. currently that I've only got in post-quarantine or post, yeah, like post-lockdown essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah, the, that la the last music video that's on my website, when quarantine was coming into lockdown, the, the artist was coming over and we were editing it together here. So that was that was the latest project before we went into lockdown. So, like, what excites you about uh, the music video directing experience? I just like it because I'm young, to be honest. I think that there's like a. You're young. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like a David Fincher like directed music videos when he was younger, and then went into like this narrative world when he got older. Sure, sure. Um, I think there's like a youthfulness to like directing music videos. That's fun because you're working with young people. You're working with people who I feel like. Uh, when they hopefully knock on wood, when we all go big, essentially, like there's just like a community of it, and I think music videos is cool to start with. Uh, also, like the composer for Bated Breath, Harrison, he was one of the first. He was he was the second music video that I've done, um, and my relationship with him brought it to where he composed the movie. He did it for free, um, and that was like another thing of where like. I just like the idea of these relationships that I get to build through music videos. It's a little bit easier yeah. than trying to stick into the narrative world. Yeah, so I guess, so it sounds like what you're saying is it's, it's almost like a safe training ground for experimentation mm -hmm. versus the pressure of managing a film set. Yeah. It's like, yeah, because yeah, I mean... Like motion yeah. picture is, there's so <laughs> many elements to making a motion picture film. Like... It's not like that with music videos, but at least the skills are pretty relatable. Like, you still got to communicate with people. You still have to understand composition. You still have to understand, you still have to have, like, narrative sensibility uh, in a way. And so, like, no, that, that's always going to be trained. It's different. And I guess the reason I bring it up is because I avoided music videos for a long time. Uh -huh. And I had the opportunity to direct one uh, a few months ago, just super... Super as indie as it gets, the way that I I love doing things. Yeah, yeah. I had I really struggled with figuring out what a music video like. What how how does what is how do you make a good music video and how do I convey the story? Like it was just really weird for me to reverse engineer a song the, into into the video. To visual, because I'm not I'm not like visually stimulated director. I'm like yeah 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 emotionally yeah. And, and character driven yeah. and that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, there's there's really no character driven music videos as much as there are like visually like cinematic, freaking lights every like colorful lights everywhere music videos, which is what I'm actually learning. I'm actually learning that with music videos, it's best to actually not really care about <laughs> narrative. I'm sorry, like unless unless there's like, you know, unless the the song has the intention for it, unless you could really see see it all actually put out there are, don't get me wrong there's a bunch of amazing narrative music videos yeah, yeah. but usually i've just been learning like okay i best example to tell this to tell you this is both my parents don't know anything about film they're both dentists when i showed them a narrative music video they didn't fully get it when i showed them a visual aesthetic red lights everywhere strobe light effect all that kind of stuff my mom was like oh it looks like a real music video um it, it, she kind of basically just didn't understand mm -hmm. The narrative one as much and so she immediately didn't she dismiss, dismissed it as like a real music video so I what I'm understanding is there there should be less of an attachment to exactly um, the story structure 
that you want to go. I think one simple thing to put it that I've learned mm -hmm. is every music video, if you want it to feel like there's a narrative, there just needs to be a transformation moment for the artist or for the character. Yeah. As long as they, as long as like we could see like by what I mean transformation is like fire and ice. Like going from ice to fire, like that feels like a transformation for the. As long as there's that, I think people feel like there's a narrative sensibility to it. I, I like your wording and how you say, if you want it to feel like there's a narrative. <laughs> in reality, there's still no narrative there. But. Well, I, it, the, what I mean by transformation is yeah. arc, essentially, because I feel like that's the closest thing to understanding yeah, yeah, yeah. a change, at least for stories, would be if you know if there's a, if there's a full arc to it. Yeah, I guess that's that's kind of the difficult. Yeah, I don't know. It's, but it's music videos, you got to visually show that arc too. Yeah, yeah. Right. So a lot of it, I've also been realizing, going back to what I learned, is how important set dressing is for music videos. Set dressing and lighting is actually, and hair, and makeup, and wardrobe are so much more important than again camera. Shoot it on a Sony. Shoot it on your iPhone. But like, knock in that cool set dressing. Make sure they have cool wardrobe and yeah. like their hair is done and stuff like that. Like, that's what's going to make a music video feel more production value. Well, and all I that. mean, that that's. But at the same time, that's always the case, even in film too. <laughs> yes, it is. And uh, your your future was what gave me that. Okay. Yeah, your future was where I saw like we cared about this wardrobe. Like she's. Just knowing of how many photos I had to take of Michelle oh, right, in the, right. in, the, in those different outfits was like one of the exposures I got that's making me think of the importance of it. Uh, the, I mean, you flipping your entire apartment into like a set dress, into a set with seeing how it looked was definitely, I got, I got a shit ton of stringy lights because of you. Oh, really? Yeah, because yeah. I remember that was how we created the practical lights. Yeah. Brilliant. Connor was super stoked about Yeah. Because without, yeah, they added a lot for, uh, for a little. Yeah. So. You ended up being able to do bokeh effects with that. Like, that added cinem cinematic shots right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess, like, at the end of the day, it's, I think what, what we're just coming down to is your camera doesn't matter. <laughs> doesn't matter. Okay, yeah, I mean, that's a big, that's a, sure. I'll take that back <laughs> for a second. Sure. Your camera matters if you have, like, high VFX. That's why you want that red camera or that cinema camera that is shooting at that high bit rate. If you're doing crazy post After Effects stuff, I understand why you would need, need yeah, a bigger much camera. More flexibility, dynamic range, yeah. all of that. Um, but we're not we're not at that level. I think I think we need to deserve to get to a place where we get to be allowed to use cameras like that. Yeah. Essentially, so I guess we can clarify because uh, we haven't quite said it on this podcast yet, but that. We're primarily talking about like the indie world and, and yeah. kind of getting your bearings and, and working your getting yeah. your experience up, taking your steps up in, in in all avenues. Like even like like what I just got done with was the feature. It's like all right, sweet, first feature in the books. How do I step up from there? Yeah. So that's kind of where we're at. Is we're, which I think is kind of cool. Like I don't I, I don't hear enough conversations about like how the indie film world kind of actually works and how to get the most out of it and what to yeah. and, and that kind of stuff. So I kind of enjoy this 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 space of uh, talking about this. No, I, I do too. Um, this is like so far I'm very insightful on just learning more things right now as we're talking. I really I'm really happy you 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 asked me to be on this to be very honest with you. Awesome. 
That's very cool. I think one day if I start a podcast, I would love to have you as a guest. Oh, please. I love talking. Um, Yeah, okay, so there's the music videos. Yeah. I'll just re-clarify again, or re... uh, All right, so primarily music videos were about just getting experience, making decisions, and and trying stuff out. And you still... It's a discovery. And you're still... are you um, the way that you had described it about about being young, and that's why you're kind of attracted to it? Do you imagine that it's going to be a thing where you kind of phase it out? You're like, oh, I don't really touch music videos anymore because now I'm trying to focus on. That depends. Like, is that a... I mean, we got Spike Jones right there directing Arcade Fire, like sure. music videos. Sure. Um, and he's doing Apple commercials, and I don't know. I'm I'm fine with. I'm, I want to say, to, to answer your thing, I want to say, no, I'll still pick it up. I guess it depends it just, on who approaches you, too. Yeah, it's it like, needs to be a, a caliber where I feel like the amount of work that I worked to get to where I am, hopefully, I would want it to feel like the person I'm working with has done that same, you know, has had that same experience, too. Um, and that's kind of like where I would not, I would say I'm open to anything at that point. But the idea of being young right now, I eventually do want it to fade out. I want to just be able to build enough credibility within our community to be able to like be valued enough that I could be not doing music videos now and go into narrative film. Um, an inspired, inspiring Persian American, probably Australian too, director is Nabil. I don't know if you know him. N a b i l. Could also be saying that wrong. He directed his first feature film. But he's like around 35. He's done hundreds of music videos. Alt-J, Kanye, Big Sean, crazy names. Now he's now being able to do um, his, his first feature. He kind of worked up to being able to where he was finding investors and all of that because yeah, of his yeah. credibility of mm-hmm. his past. So that's kind of, I think, where if I'm able to build that through just projects that I've worked on, then someone could value enough to kind of get you out of that shell. Into the yeah, next no, step. I've, I've definitely seen that um, strategy before. Like I was almost on a feature as a as a script supervisor. Uh-huh. Where the I think the I don't know if they utilize this method to get funding or whatever, but it was a first time director who was, was coming from the acting world, and I guess it was like her time to just like try the directing right. side. And she had experiences directing music videos. And she like directed a Billie Eilish music video at one point and stuff. So she had a Billie Eilish, Eilish sure. connection. Yeah. And uh, kind of like utilizing an artist connection to maybe get like a song in the thing to be like, oh, we've got like a song from this artist committed. Yeah. And that kind of helps up the credibility of the totally. kind of pitch. So. Totally. It's, yeah, like, what can you throw on the t- What value can you bring to like, the table? Like just, everyone kind of... You just throw it all. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's the process. And I also think about, because uh, my, my favorite band uh, is Linkin Park. Oh, no way. They went to my <laughs> high school. They went to two of the artists. I don't know exactly their names. But oh, they, they went, went to, okay. They, yeah, they uh, graduated from Agora, Agora High. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, the the DJ Johan yeah. um, ended up directing a, uh, a feature film. Wow. Like, I don't know how, how recent. It was probably, like, six or seven years ago now. That's awesome, yeah. But, like, because the band has so many creatives in there, they eventually phased out directors in general and started directing their own music videos, and then, you know, they're big enough where it's, like... You, you bring a good point right now about this, too. I think a lot of new artists are realizing that they want to direct their own music videos, too. T-Swift is doing it now, too. T- Miley Cyrus just did it. Um, 
I mean, someone who I worked with, uh, Abby the Nomad, which I feel like he actually is so freaking creative where I feel like he could even direct his own film, his own motion picture film too. Like Logic, I think, is also doing that, um, who wrote, who wrote a, a novel. I, I, what I'm, I think what I'm getting at is a lot of people are actually creative enough to do any of these jobs. It just depends if they actually have the interest to do it. Is another thing I'm like learning, and what I'm figuring out with the music videos more so is you need to be there as a director to facilitate the artist because it's their music. Right, right. Um, anyway, sorry to like off no, topic no, with sure, bringing it back sure. to the music videos, but it was just something I've been realizing. Like a lot of people are, um, like you mentioned, like Lincoln Park. They they're getting rid of whoever is not really part of their creative team just to be able to have their own vision be more uh, put on the screen. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. It worries me, but it doesn't worry me. To me, it just says that I could have another yeah, opportunity. It's, it's in a very, here's, where, here's where directing can be a little bit like a lot of people don't understand what they're jumping into when they jump into a directing role Indeed. in the first place. Yeah. So yeah. the issue becomes you're seeing people where they watch directors from an artist position let's just say and they're like oh like I could do that <laughs> but really you don't really see all that goes into what that person is doing like pre-productions is pre that something in mind pre-production vision the communication with the DP visuals like yeah all that kind of stuff but like it's a very attractive position to be in especially if you're an artist that's never done it and you've been performing for years yeah it's like let me like I've, I've been directed enough to where like I could, I could figure it out, and just yeah. just let me give it a shot. Um, but like I work with a lot, of, a lot of first time directors in, in film as as a script supervisor, and uh, you don't. It, it's crazy to witness even people like older with a lot of life experience, or like in, in casting or in writing. If again, come back to having the experience on set in multiple facets, really gets you ready for the director position because you totally. know what's happening around you. If you're coming from the writing world or the casting world, then you're like, oh, I've dealt with stuff, but you've never really been on set. Right, right. You may feel like you know what's going on, but you're just as green as almost anybody yeah. else because it's such a weird it gets, place to be. It gets, um, it gets, when it gets down to the nitty gritty of the job, it's how you communicate with the people. That's everything. That, it really comes down, and I think that uh, if you're like, kind of, you know, I, like, idealing what a, a, a director job would be just because you're like on set and you're seeing it, it's, you're seeing it just within that one moment, that one frame of how that director is behaving, but really how that, beha how that director has been behaving with people in the pre-production, people in just getting the investors. Like the way you talk, for instance, the way you would talk to an investor it's clearly different to how you would talk to your DP, and it's clearly different than how you would talk to the G&E crew when you're trying to have them hang a light up there. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like what I've been learning from that is, um, just to be a little more clear, is as from personal experience, obviously with an investor I have to be credible. I have to be very like sharp with them. With the G&E crew, I can't be sharp with them. I can't be strict with them. If I do that, they're not going to hang up the light up there for me. I need to kind of be very, like, you know, hey, boys, how you doing? Hey, did you see that last? Like, I got to play the role of where we are able to still get what I want with them putting that light up, for instance. But, you know, doing it, do it in this collaborative way where um, they would want to come back to work for you again. 
essentially. Yeah. Like that's that's yeah. the best. Yeah, because I guess I could elaborate to a little bit how you're saying it's how you talk to them. I would go a step further and say it's what you even talk to them about. Yes, indeed. Which yes, I, which I the contact. You're, you're including context. that in there, but it's like. No, I love that you clarified it. Yeah, yeah. very much so. Because a, a new director will jump on set and they'll know they have to talk to the actor and they'll know that they have something to say about a visual. But me as a script soup, I'll, I'll ask them questions all day based on the script. I'm like, how, how are we covering, like, how, how many setups are we doing this? How are we covering it? What's, yeah. the, what's the intent in this moment? So that way I, I'm watching, I'm, I'm having their back as a script supervisor Indeed. making sure that we're, we're covering it in the way that they're, they're wanting it. And I noticed that a lot of them, like, don't don't have those answers ahead of time for some reason, which is why I ask questions so that way when the AD asks, it's like, okay, I kind of like prep them for yeah for the answers yeah. and the DP and stuff. But like that stuff you don't think about when you're you're directing is how much time you have, how much yeah, uh, how how many angles you want and why you want that angle and and how long you're gonna run that specific angle for. Are we covering the full scene on that angle? Or are we just covering this moment? Yeah. That? Because then you have to think about the editing of it. How are you going to edit it later? And yeah. Just, there's just yeah. so much to think uh, about. Totally. I, I, was, I was watching Bated Breath, actually, and I remember like one of the scenes in the kitchen where we were all falling under time pressure. It was when they were all sitting at that table and then had to go all the way to where the sink was. Don't know if you yeah, yeah. fairly remember that. But I realized what I did right, and I didn't really realize I did it right until when I got to edit it. But I was like, I inserted a shot of like the, the, the brother's reaction as an OTS. But I knew Chris was on my tail about time. So I was, that was one of the times where I remember looking at my script and I was like, I can't run this entire scene. What do I fucking need? And I, I was able to like just line exactly the moment that I need to help us change that transition from that table to the sink. Yeah, yeah. Looking at like the amateur version of me, if I didn't know the experience that I got, I would have just jumped to that and then I would be in the poster and be like, these two scenes can't. Like I can't, I, I'm not. I can't. There's no connecting bridge right, from this right. moment to that moment. Um, but it was being on set, knowing exactly what you need to be able to get to have that edit flow. Mm -hmm. So the experience. Uh, when you said like how many setups you have, how many shots you have. When I did the mistake with Frankie, I think we had 20, 20 hour days because I didn't have a schedule. I didn't know my shots. Yeah, yeah you were just kind of going for it. I was just going. I was literally going with it, and I gotta say like. I'm so blessed to have had him still be on it. Like by that time, Frankie had done national commercials for like all state, like all these different things. So he got to experience set, um, but he like really was a trooper with me yeah. in like sticking with it. Yeah. But you, we all need that experience. So I think first thing to, for anyone to do if they want to do it, do filmmaking, is to actually just grab their iPhone and go shoot things with narrative sensibility if they can, yeah. so they could actually learn how to edit that. That would be nice. Yeah. Cause I know, like I, I'm still. I mean, that's why we create is. Is like I'm still learning stuff in like every project that I do. Mm -hmm. um, for instance, earlier this year, uh, I directed Popcorn, um, which is a little comedic short. Yeah. And because uh, I guess one thing that I was taking away when I had done when I finished it was on the inside or like filming of that. Yeah. The the constraints were so were so strong on that that I couldn't there's like no wiggle room to go for too much additional coverage I'm like I have to get what I need to edit this film number one um, so I, I was able to kind of do the experimentation of almost relearning the fact that getting more coverage 
for the right reasons is like up to production value too. Yeah, yeah. Where I would always fight too much coverage. Like I hate, I hate when directors enter a scene and they don't. Again, they don't know how they're going to edit it, so they cover the wide for the full thing. They cover. They the get their for the basic setups. Yeah. And it's like okay, you've covered it from all these angles, and you're doing it for like the full five minute scene because you don't know how you're going to edit it and you're just grabbing stuff because you're going to figure it out later. Like, yeah. I hate, I hate kind of... It's a, it's a safe way. It's like a, it's a it's, very... It's a luxury, it's a luxury thing. Totally. To and they get that on like TV shows all the time, I feel like. And obviously, if they got the budget for it, they're so much more willing to even go about that. Yeah. Um, in the indie world, I say your script breakdown and your shot listing slash storyboarding is the most important. And what I learned from Bated Breath, because in Bated Breath, there is a lot of basic coverage. And that was more to money and time and, yeah, having, to, it, yeah. and having to get that. But one thing I think I could have done stronger was if I had sat down with my DP a little bit more while reading the script rather than just looking at shot diagrams. Because I had, I had shot diagrams for yeah, days yeah. For, that sh yeah. for that film. But if I sat with the DP a little bit more in reading, like. Does this moment feel like if we cut to like a prof like a profile of her, it will play a better tone because we can't see all of her face, so we don't see all of her emotions, but it leaves us feeling a little bit more disconnected with her. Like, you know, like questioning composition to then to the emotion on the paper, hmm. the script, which I feel like directors are not doing if they really go in with wanting to get basic coverage. Right, right. Um, they haven't really broken down the script to the frame essentially. Mm -hmm. And I think if they do that, then you'll get a little bit more of a dynamic scene. Yeah, because I, I, I'll rewatch my my short, the popcorn one, and I'll, I'll be super proud of, like, because I guess the objective on that one that I that I pushed instead was, like, we just maximized the time. So it was still, like, a one-day shoot. Mm -hmm. And I was like, all right, cool, we got it. All right, move in. All right, now we, I'm happy with that. Cool, move in again. And you get, like, the, the close-up, the medium, and you get... It was like stealing. It was almost like stealing shots, where it's like, all right, cool. Let's try this. Let's try that. Yeah. And just being super flexible with, yeah. with what you're grabbing. It was, it was a nice, you know, shoulder rig and stuff. Yeah. Was like, all right, cool. We're super flexible. And as an as indie, another thing I learned from you is to to do things shoulder. I think you you mentioned the Duplass brothers. The Duplass. Du uh, Duplass. Duplass. Who I recently I'm watching Room 104. That's uh, awesome. And I th thought about you, and I did not know that the guy, one of the brothers, was on the morning show, and I love the morning show. Um, and I, I was just thinking about you because the way that they're executing that is all of the story happens within this one room. Which is beautiful. Which is so indie, like so up our alley of no budget, narrative, you know, and execution will bring this like into a masterpiece of its own. Um, and so it, it was not... What I'm going with this just to mention like this fun fact was sure. I didn't I think you mentioned it while we were on set a while back that you like these directors mm -hmm. and it wasn't until seeing their name on when I was watching Room 104 that I clicked that I was like oh Eddie told me about this like Eddie told me these brothers yeah. um, and wh where I'm going with it is you when you were mentioning that you were saying a lot of like shoulder rigs I think in your film in your feature we did a lot of shoulder rigs on purpose for that flexibility mm -hmm. and when you're doing indie projects. I think shoulder rigs are so much better than trying to see if you could get a jib or like a crane or all those. I mean, again, you need to, what I'm learning, and I'm not even fully there yet, I think, is you need to work enough and have enough content to where you deserve to get those pieces of gear. 
for your content. Yeah, because I'm even just trying. I don't know. I'm still resistant. Like I'm trying to break out a little bit on myself too. That's why, like I said, there's always a growth. Like yeah. I almost feel like I'm trapping myself in the handheld shoulder rig world. Ah. Where it's like, all right, then how do I break out of here? Like, what kind of like what what would I want a gym shot to look like anyway? What's a what's an end that's true. Shot? Like, very very true. Because I've always been, uh, it just takes time and it takes yeah it takes because like the jib's gotta come down at the right moment. It's plan. It's a lot of coordinating with with those kind of shots. It's just a pain. Like I I'm not a fan of the time. Yeah. But they're great shots when you nail them. Yeah, indeed. I I think that um, what you're realizing is because you kind of executed it, and I would say successfully too. With this like a shoulder rig method necessarily of shooting the mm -hmm. flexibility to it, I think you are scratching your itch of wanting to have more time to execute those more complicated shots. I think that I think you're gonna get there. I really, I really, really believe that you're gonna oh, get for there. Sure. Um, when 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 we get there, I think that's gonna be a moment <laughs> that you and I could like hang out in an edit room and be like, you see that shot? See that jib shot? Yeah. What I would love is like a jib shot to have a steady cam on it so that we could literally start on top, bring it down, and then have the steady cam walk off. And do the whole continuing the shot. Yeah, it's a so. uh, Citizen Kane. I feel like Citizen Kane was like that. Like like Long ass one take shot. I think about a 1917. 1917 is a great one. You'll be nailing those kind of shots where it's like, oh, we're just going to, because we can. You know, we can. Like they have like a drone coming down and then a Moviop picking it up and like walking with it. Like those are, those coordinating is. Insane. We're in a world of Corona, Corona, COVID nineteen, um, and it's kind of hitting. I mean, the film, the film scene was kind of hiatus and for like the whole entire world for for months. So yeah, uh, and they're slowly coming back together. I th I I think that like I mentioned, I think before we were talking when we were setting up was I I've been getting more jobs post like this lockdown and with Corona being here. When did you start getting jobs again? Or did you, the jobs, I'm assuming jobs halted for a period. Yeah, um, I think when the first lockdown was lifted, a week after I got I got a music that, video. What, what month was that? That was sometime in April. April? Wasn't that early? Yeah, hey. sometime, sometime in, in April. Um, I don't know exactly which week. Yeah, and shout out to Keon for giving me that job. but. Uh, so that, that, and then from there on, I just made enough relationships with the producers and stuff that they actually brought me on to two more music videos after that music video. Yeah. Um, but I, like I said, I think the only reason why I'm getting these jobs is because I wasn't so high into working in the industry before this virus kind of came. So I'm not, I'm like noticing more improvement in me getting jobs just because I was like lower in the totem pole. Like I said, if I was working for like a production company right now, like a full time, and I'm not working now, obviously there would be a huge contrast in my life, but I'm kind of actually finding inspiration and momentum through this moment right now with Corona being here. Uh, and I think it's, it's it, for me personally, I really do enjoy it um, in having this lockdown. I think this allowed me to do a lot more self-reflecting in yeah, yeah. directing in uh, just ex like realizing I don't want to say that I'm a filmmaker even I, just, I would rather say like I'm an expressionist like I just want to express myself rather than I, I just use me the film filmmaking as a medium to do that sure, sure. I would you know I, I play instruments so I could even do it in like musically I feel like so uh, that was one thing I think at quarantine helped me which helped me store integrity in this idea of wanting to be an artist 
Um, and I feel like that's what Corona kind of brought me out, giving me now fuel to pursue film a little bit more aggressively. Yeah, how do you, I guess, I, I'd be interested to talk about the safety aspect of these sets that you're getting on, being that uh, how, that's a good conversation. how do you feel about how these sets are being run, being that like that early on in quarantine, like the unions were still trying to figure out how to properly run sets and stuff, so like, how has that felt jumping into those situations, knowing the world that you're kind of in at, yeah. that, at that moment? Did that affect you in any way? Um, it it did in, in weird ways. I mean, one thing I'm learning is it might be better to become a COVID safety officer on sets and get that certification to do that rather than being a PA. Because one, when they're budgeting now, they actually pay those people more. And so they're actually taking away from a PA rate to fund that. Mm. So that's one of the biggest reasons if you're thinking money-wise. But second, my biggest reason on being on set, even as a PA, was always that I get to see people who have been doing this longer than I have work. And I get to learn from that. And as a PA, they make you sit in your car now when they don't need you. And they, they'll radio you when they need you. As a COVID officer, you're on set the entire time. So I was like, man, I really want to get this. It is on my, I haven't done it yet. It's on my list to go through the safety. It's called safetyset.com and get the certifications. But I realized I would think I want to do that in this time when we're in this virus because that's going to still keep me next to the director, get to see what I'm, yeah, what they're you, working on. Yeah, you walk around and, and make sure everybody's staying safe. And yeah. So it gets you an excuse to be in different areas yeah. that you normally wouldn't get to just be wandering like this yeah. or whatever. And so to answer your question about the safety, it really does depend on who is the safety ambassador for Corona now. They start the day with doing temperature checks. Um, and then they give you wristbands, which to me mm -hmm. kind of creates a hierarchy on the set, a little bit more noticeable hierarchy on the set, right? Because the PAs can't go into this section of set. Uh, whereas like, you know, if you're wearing this color wristband, you have all access to everywhere. And then they're kind of, I understand it because you don't want groupings around mm -hmm. people and around areas. So in that case, they're kind of splitting you off in every way, um, which to me is more of a reason to even just get the COVID safety personal certificates that you could be on set even more actively. Um, I, I do think that a lot of it is just the image that they're working within the guidelines, and I understand that they are. But how much is really being done is my question. Because I don't, I don't know if temperature checks constantly is like yeah. fully effective. Because it's, yeah, all right. So you can get into that for sure. Because that's how I, that's, that's the tricky, weird issue that we're in as as uh, freelancers in Los Angeles where it's like all right well I, I need to make money yeah and uh, the government isn't quite taking care of us right and um, and the sets that are going on in the indie world like the accountability is kind of weird because it's like I don't know if you've had this ex I mean okay so the idea is wear masks is, yep. is like a starting point. Yep. Uh, wash your hands frequently. The hand sanitizer. Right. Uh, with the wristbands that you kind of said, right. where, you, where they try to limit and interactions. Time, anytime you go in front of anywhere, anytime you get close to talent, you have to wear the face shield, not only the mask, but like the shield as well. But like if you're not close to talent, you could take it off. So they, I don't know if you've experienced that, but like they, they distinguish what you have to be wearing when you're around principal talent. Right, right. And then... All right, so there's kind of like those, and the tempo, all right, and then the, you mentioned then temperature, temperature checks, yeah. which, of 
course, the safest way to prevent people from getting sick is to not shoot, not shoot at all. Totally. But, and then if you're going to do it, I guess temperature checks will pinpoint people who are actively distrib, distrib, uh, not distributing. Seeing symptoms. Yeah, showing symptoms. Yeah. Um, but. How much? How much? How much is it really truthful to? It really showing it because there's like an incubation well, period because, because when the whole, yeah the whole issue with with COVID and the reason it's so perfect of a disease yeah to to hurt society so much is the asymptomatic issue yeah yeah is even if you are positive even, even if you're not showing symptoms it doesn't mean you're not positive with it positive yeah so it kind of just kills everything it's like well cool you're not showing symptoms but it doesn't mean anything. And, and they even ask you one thing that they now have that you have to fill out is the survey before walking on set. Right. Have you come into contact? With yeah, in the past fourteen days, all like all of these. Out. Have you flown? In, have you flown domestically? Have you all that? All those kinds. Do you of agree that? to contact set immediately if you see symptoms within the fourteen day period? They they. By the way, I save those just so when I'm running my own set, that's what I could send off. Yeah. To say that I'm adding and following the herd in this case, because I feel like no one really knows what to do. So everyone is doing their best into creating the right image that they're doing something. But that's the issue, is it's just an image. Yeah. And that's kind of more, more of, because like I'm a part of script supervisor groups where you get to like, you know, people chime in about like, oh, what's this set like? And what's, like Facebook pages and yeah, stuff? Like Facebook, Same, yeah, Facebook groups yeah. and stuff, where you, where you get to hear experiences and the remote working as a script supervisor, the, the whatever, and all that kind of stuff. But like, um, a lot of people in in our freelance world are kind of like just advising against, it's not even safe to go back to set at all. And you can kind of show like the whole Robert Pattinson news that just came out yeah. with, with hey, the Batman. Yes. Is they went on a hiatus because of COVID. They finally came back, mm -hmm. strict guidelines, Three days in, the lead actor. He gets sick. Yeah. <laughs> test positive for COVID in, in the super union world where they're tr like, they have acts, they have, they can do anything they want with running a set, with essentially. Running a set. Like, yeah. If they can do it, how could Indy be able to do it? How could anybody do it? So yeah. It's kind of like, a, no, you, you brought a very good point. So it's just weird. It's scary. I mean, yeah, the, the the topic of the corona is, I think, one of those where every industry, not just film, every industry is probably having similar questions that you and I are having right now. Um, even believing it, like believing in, if, is, is this exactly like going to work? Like, is this the right method? Mm -hmm. And I think the more we're just going through it, the more we're just seeing, like, how much is an image? Like Halloween being shut down, for instance. I 100% think that's them being like, yeah, and we also closed Halloween because of the pandemic. Like, they're just adding to it. And then they lifted it, it, right? They, oh, I did they do that? Yeah. Like, God, it, like that just, where's, where's trust formed? <laughs> Stick to one, please. Like, well, they're like, wait, 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 there's back. Oh, my God. It's like, we didn't actually think this through. Sorry, no, you can actually trick or treat because you can keep distance outside and, yeah. like, whatever the scenario is. Like, who knows? What, what it's going to end up being, we're only in September, and there's a lot of time till Halloween. <laughs> yeah. Regardless, people don't, you know, we're all trying to figure it out, and, and kind of, I don't know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a weird place, 
But I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to say about. To be honest, not with COVID. I I think it's such an un, it's such an uncertain area of topic that like it will constantly continue changing yeah. for everyone. I, I, I guess what I could say is, um, I've been, I've witnessed a couple of sets where, like 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 we we're saying, it is an image thing, to where, it's frustrating when higher ups aren't even. Following, yeah. Following, like the my last set was like that. Yeah. Emails are so strict about like masks are mandatory. Yeah. And this and this and this, and then I get to set and I'm like, wait a second, I'm seeing like your mask is down here, you're over here. Because email, the email could be uh, printed and it'll look like they did everything correctly to exactly. it. Exactly. It's so yeah. It's irking. <laughs> so that's why when you said that you were you were getting plenty of gigs early, like during quarantine, I'm like, those were not, those were not. Uh, no. Up to snuff, probably. No, they definitely had people there. I, I would say, I think, I don't know if you see Keon's story by any chance, but they've given Keon a six-foot pole. Oh, no. And Keon's job <laughs> is to go between each person that's not and put this pole between them. And he's working on the show SWAT right now in Santa Clarita. Yeah. Um, and I, I got to say, like, it's a little strict, but, like, that's where I'm seeing a little bit more of an active, you know, effort in trying to do the whole keeping distance while still working and stuff but at the same time it gets so hard to stay six feet apart and then communicate like yeah, what yeah. you're really trying to communicate yeah. it's 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 interesting it's interesting times because yeah, then you get you get all these studies coming out too where it's like six feet's not enough or yeah or it doesn't matter about your distance. If you're indoors and you're sharing the same air anyway, then it doesn't matter how far apart you are. That's why, like, office work yeah, is it's like, airborne. not a good thing. Because, yeah. It, it doesn't it, even matter. So it's like, all right, why, whatever. So you just, do, like you said, do the best you can. Let's get through it. Yeah. <laughs> Changing topics. Um, yeah, what do you got? One of, one of the things that I had on my little brainstorming session was wanting to talk about capturing ideas and then implementing ideas. And kind of ties in with like a writing process and how you would go about it. How do you how do you capture your ideas? Define capture an idea. Like, what do you mean? Uh, how do I know what to write about? Or no, 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 no. I think that's why I said implementing ideas as well. Because I think that when you capture your idea, you go through a filter process with the idea, and then you kind of see where it implements into more of the project you were thinking of, or something you like for a character. Um, and then the overall, it kind of ties in with like a writing process, you know, starting from like writing a treatment for your script to then outlining it and then really getting into it. And you know, I know you like using index cards, uh, which I do too, because it just allows you to, you know, move shit around and yeah, see yeah. it all yeah. in a wide, wide screen essentially. It's easier than the, the digital doc where you have to like copy and paste and like move. It's like all right. Kind yeah, physical touching and moving is for sure. It's uh, it adds more intimacy to you with the material mm -hmm. by being able to do it like that. I think. Yeah. Um, but yeah, how do you go ca about capturing ideas? Like, do you write it down on your phone? Do you record your voice? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm thinking about the latest short because um, me, I have me and a buddy have been kind of doing some weekly like writing short film kind of stuff just yeah. to just to have some account of, like accountability partners on on whatever so yeah. i've been wanting to um, create
create like a backlog of short film options just to have in my back pocket for when I want to do a, like a little a two actor thing. If I, so okay, what, what gets me started on ideas is thinking about um, it could come from. All right, I read for Austin Film Festival this year. I don't know if I'm supposed to say that or not, but like I was one of their. Uh, like script yeah because you know people submit their scripts to awesome yeah. film festival yeah. and I was one of the initial readers that was like does it move on to the next round or not so I was able to experience a lot of a lot of scripts that way and see different writing styles and, and that kind of stuff and then as a script supervisor I got to read all the scripts all yeah. the time too with, yeah. with, with movies that I, I Typically, like I wouldn't watch them and I wouldn't direct them myself. But sure. I, I'm here to support the vision of a director, so it's a different job. Yeah. So like I will often make fun of scripts that I'm reading, and like in my in the back of my mind or as I'm reading them, I'm like, why? Like the read could obviously be taken in a non-serious tone in this horror movie. Where yeah. It's like this guy just seems dumb. Yeah. Versus. He's like looking for answers. I'm like, he should know the answer. So like. Right. So like I'll think about. Uh, my version of an investigator and just kind of start from like, all right, kind of make this guy look like he's super stoic and he's got a lot of stuff that he's, he's really thought process. Like you can see his brain is ticking away trying to solve this thing. He's on the, the answer to this mystery is on the tip of his tongue, but he just never gets there. Yeah. And he's like always asking questions because he, he, like it's not, nothing's grabbing, but he always looks like he's on the verge of a discovery. Yeah. So like I'll, you 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 take like something that's similar in the script you're working on essentially yeah. like someone gave you to work on and then you you start using your own imagination to create your own alternate universe for that person yeah so i'll get, i'll get yeah i mean that's classic like just inspiration from stuff i'm reading yeah um, and then that'll be a starting point for like a a little short film where i'm like all right yeah. what's this guy up to what kind of person would compliment him well um and so do you feel like as soon as you get that idea, you just kind of go straight to the note cards or straight to typing things out? Like, okay. do, you, do you just splat things onto the piece of paper and then start taking every element that you like from what you just, you know, spit onto that paper and kind of structuring it into a screenplay? It depends on what I'm writing. Uh, so during quarantine, um, I partnered with, my co-writer Jamie Keener mm -hmm. uh, and we, we wrote a feature in a couple months which was cool so like if I'm doing the feature then it's yeah it's more of the like we, we, we spent like a month of just figuring out who the characters were and once once you get kind of that layout of like, yeah. right, this is who we're working with this is kind of like some spitball stuff of what we want to see happen based on like the time period and based on what we said about the characters and conflicts we want to see mm -hmm. happen. Mm -hmm. And then we went to the note cards after that to kind of lay it all out and then kind of move stuff around. And then that's how you, is that how you, when, when you do that, that's kind of where you see the beginning of the scenes. Like you kind of see uh, like scene one, scene two, because each card is, are you using each note card as a scene essentially? Yeah, yeah essentially. And then we really want to, because uh, like, yeah, I and mean, that's one thing I learned from Instance on the Inside is really, like, even upping, like, upping the the, spe the specificity of, of leading to the end of an act. Like, I, like, that's, like, Instance on the Inside is my first feature script, so, yeah. like, it's, all right, how do I level up from that? 
let's hyper-focus on leading into the second act with this big moment here. Let's place this card that would be good here. And how do we end the second act? And like, cool, what's going to lead up to that? Yeah. And, and that kind of deal. But with shorts, I just kind of, I just sit and write. And I'm like, all right, bust it out, six-page short, cool. Yeah, yeah. Um, I haven't tackled feature film, which is why I'm asking these more questions and yeah. to to see what you have to say so I could kind of get a better sense on how I would go about executing it. Um, yeah, even for like short films, I, I mean, in whatever I do, I feel like if I'm not prepared, my, if I'm not like prepared, I get so insecure of going into it. Um, and I think what writing really is and what I'm starting to hear from other writers is like, it's okay if you're not prepared. It, it kind of is a discovery. It is one of the most organic forms of discovery before you even get the script to a director to discover it in the right, right. the other way of it, yeah. um, which is what I do have an experience with. So, yeah, for for me, I'm like trying to, like I said, reverse engineer from editing to cinematography, directing. Now this writing, um, I think I've expressed this to you over like I've been wanting to do it, and to this day, I still lack this um, comfortability of just sitting behind the computer and letting my brain think of things mm -hmm. rather than trying to feel like I need to have everything planned, know all my characters, yeah, all it, that. It, it feels similar to what you talked about earlier with, with the quantity of directing. So that way when you get up to the bigger project, you can kind of gather all that and use it on that. Yeah, yeah. It's very similar. With, that's kind of why I do the short films too. Is like I get to really hone in on. All right, just sit down and write something, and it'll come to you. Yeah. So that way, when I do sit down and I write the next feature, then it's like, all right, cool. I've I've been keeping that muscle working. Right. So I can actually dig in deeper now. Versus totally. Digging in deeper all the time. It's like just do the thing, and you'll be ready for the big thing. Do you do you have Right now, I know one thing you and I have been talk have talked about in the past was you have like a thirty minute reading block that you have for yourself. Yeah. Have you created that for like writing at all? No. I got it. <laughs> no. no, I can only do so much in a day. <laughs> I yeah, yeah. I've got yeah, but reading like reading is depending on the book that I'm reading. Sometimes the daily read is still a challenge where it's like I don't really feel like reading today. Sure. Yeah. Um, but then I do it anyway, and I'm thankful for it. Yeah. So yeah. adding writing, no, it's more the writing has been more of like a new weekly assignment. Got it. Go got it. But at least during the week, I'm thinking about a story or knowing that it's got to be done, and it's less of a uh, priority. Got it. And you plan that out on the calendar? Because I know you're. I saw. I I've got the three month calendar in my living room. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So like, yeah, I, we set it. We set a due date on when the script is due, and then. Uh, and then um, when the next meeting is, so it's like you want to give that buffer to read the other person's script to kind of develop your notes for them for the meeting. Yeah. And then there's the deadline. So deadlines are always good. Yeah. No, you you have. Uh, I love your accountability. Like, even I think that's something like you've mentioned. I also remember like you saying like. Uh, one thing, because I'm the opposite of you in this in this case, and that's the one I've what I've realized, and that's something where I want to be training is the accountability for myself to be putting a deadline on something to like saying that I'm gonna have to finish it, and then you also remember on set you were saying like like you're not gonna say you're gonna do it if you're really not gonna do it, like you're one of those right. people that 100% like if you say you're gonna do something you kind of have followed through, and I saw that 
when you know you sent me like the cuts of uh, of your film. This is, it's one. It's what's on the inside, and I got, I got to see the first cut, and then I don't think I saw the full final version yet. Um, Probably not. I've not. I've not seen the full final version of it yet, but. When I saw the first cut that you had, which was a little longer, I think you definitely, I think, trimmed it from there on, right? Probably, um, yeah. It was like two hours, I think. Yeah, the initial. I don't know. Yeah, I don't remember which version I sent out, but sure, it, it was initially like two hours, ten minutes. I cut it down to two hours, like three, and then sent that, and then sent that out. Got it. And got it. Chopped out another half an hour. Got it. Yeah, I think I saw yeah. in your story of where you did chop it to, to like that thirty, like one hour and it's thirty like around eighty-seven minutes. Right, eighty-seven minutes, and that. That moment, I think it was what was through watching in your store and then having all of this experience of where you had sent it to me earlier and seeing it be like a longer yeah. version, really to me was like, holy shit, you're following through with what you said you were going to want it to do. Like you're, you're seeing it through. And that's again where I'm saying where working with you has showed me this place of like looking up to someone because it's allowing to put accountability on myself when I feel inspired of what you're doing through the, through the work yeah, that you're yeah, doing. Yeah. For, it's kind of funny to me because I've, I don't, I don't know where I got the accountability stuff from, but it's kind of, it's frustrating to me that more people, or no, okay, it's not frustrating. It's interesting to me how impressive accountability for oneself is to other people. It's like, oh, like, uh, I don't know, I don't know how to say. I it. think we all lack it in some way until someone who has disciplined themselves to develop it. And I think it's a very admirable thing. I think it depends on also how you look at it. You know, if you're slightly, I, I feel like this is something where I've detached my ego and my insecurity from to really just see what I need to learn about myself so I could be mm -hmm. more successful. Some people I think might be offended with the accountability conversation because maybe they're in a spot where they know that they're lacking that and they still are a little bit feeling a little too insecure about that. And I think that that's where it gets a little bit where they they don't look at accountability, I think, as a tool to help them, but to hold them down in a way. Like, no, I, do you know what I'm saying? Kind of. Like, you mean, so when you say that, do you mean like if they don't do the thing and letting somebody else down will will deter them from doing the thing they wanted to do in the first place? Or what do you, what do you, I think a person comes to realization that when they don't have accountability, all they are is just talk. Um, and that's what I mean about the whole insecurity thing is because in a way, what you are is like, it, what you are in a way is like more of a poser saying that you're a filmmaker, you're doing all of this, but really you, you haven't put an accountability onto you completing anything. You haven't really done much into doing what you're saying you're doing. And I feel like when you're using accountability in your way and how I've been seeing you use it is when you say you're doing something, you're, you're, putting, your, you're putting your money where your mouth is. Um, and yeah. that, that, I think, is what some people feel insecure about. Or It's not even uh, that impressive of a thing. Here's the, here's the trick. Mm -hmm. Like you kind of mentioned it earlier, is all I do is I, I only say things I'm going to do. So it's just don't say something you're not going to do. Totally. Like, it's, it's as simple as that. It's like, I'm going to, I'm going to hit the gym today. Yeah. Just go hit the gym. It's yeah. Not, it's not that hard to, or if you're not going to hit the gym, don't say you're going to hit the gym. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. I, I think you, ha I think you've understood yourself so well to know that. I think a little bit, some people, um, 
and I'm just going off experiences. I'm not going to yeah, name yeah. any names, but like people that have experiences, like, um, it, it it it's I think it's hard it's hard to say this word. I know it sounds harsh to hear it, but like it's a poser essentially. Um, people who are saying that they're doing things that they're really are not, and I think some people I think just need to go through the phase of where they are mimicking uh, what they really think they want to do, and it's it's a discovery process. So I'm not throwing shade yeah. at anyone because we all yeah. go through it. Like I was I feel like I was a poser too at first, and I feel like slightly I still am. That's why I'm not really categorizing myself as like, oh, I'm a writer. I haven't written shit. <laughs> but what I am understanding right now is coming out of my out of my shell to understand that if I want to be a writer, I actually need to write. I need to hold my accountability. And, and it also could be flipped into the simplicity of to be a writer, all I have to do is write. Mm -hmm. And then I'm a writer. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, I think uh, James Cameron had something with like just make a movie, put your name on it. Like you, you just directed the film. Like you're a director now. Yeah, the the qual the scale of if it's good or bad, I think, is one of those things where everyone needs to. It's very relevant, and I think that's where for me I get I get hooked on caring too much about. Unfortunately, sometimes, and I think other people do too, which we right. need to disidentify with that. Yeah. 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 Um... Yeah, I was going to say, uh, yeah, because I had uh, Michael on, uh, Michael G. Gable. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, he and I talked about, I mean, we didn't call them posers, but he called them, um, I don't know, he equated it to brunch. <laughs> it's like, brunch? Oh. Yeah, it's like the, the people you see at brunch yeah. aren't living the life, like they're posing the life that they want to be living without having done the work to be For the sure. person that could be going to brunch in the first place. Right, right. So we're... Like brunch is the example of like, yeah. like, like I'm not, I don't go to brunch because I, I can't afford brunch. So, yeah, yeah. So I don't, and then I'm too busy trying to do the thing versus trying to show people like, look, I mean. Yeah, I'm my, my, my equivalent to be like having an, like renting a nice car or having a nice car when you don't really right, right. like have the means to actually own a nice car. I don't know how people afford cars. Uh, I gotta say, I'm blessed to have my mom and dad. I'm blessed to have my mom and dad for almost anything that I've mm. been given to my life. I got lucky to be an only child. Oh, that's nice. It's a, I, I guess for maybe these reasons. These reasons. I was gonna say, I, I grew up really lonely in not having any siblings. And coming to coming from Iran to America, I didn't get to have an easier time making friends because of the language barrier. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I, but I gr Cause granted because you, you moved here when you were seven. seven. Yeah, nice. Uh, yeah, and I feel like the the what I gained, I think, was just a better imagination. I gotta say, growing up alone without siblings, mm -hmm. a lot of the time I was on my own, just wandering my. I remember using seeing Star Wars and then taking a shopping cart and flipping it and then going in the shopping cart. And acting as if I was in one of those yeah, the yeah. the I don't even the name but one of their, their one of their starships <laughs> and and like I would like like shake the shake the car acting as if I just got shot with like lasers and yeah, stuff yeah. playing my own games, um, so I guess for me uh, just going into it like my mom and dad I think are to the end of why I'm able to afford a car uh, have this house. One of the things that they're helping me out right now, this is kind of fun to say on a podcast because I kind of need clients, is we're looking into getting a like a studio warehouse. Okay. Uh, so like you know I could actually have like a high ceiling space uh, to be able to create sets, go to Home Depot, 
you know, like one of those things I want to do is have like a bunch of walls mm -hmm. on wheels. Right. So we just bring in the, the walls yeah, yeah. and boom, we just created a, like a room. Uh -huh. uh, and that, that's something you're working toward? Currently, my parents and I are looking into real estate properties to be able to do that. Put it on pure space, have some passive income, cool. have my own workspace. For sure, that sounds nice. Um, but going back to it, my mom and dad are the only reason why I'm able to like yeah. do that. So, because I guess like the reason I bring it up um, is I've never bought a car before. Mm. Like, and and uh, I guess in a different way, like I've been blessed to have like a dad who's a mechanic and sure. kind of like stumble into yeah. vehicles or what, like back in the day he kind of worked on bigger machinery now yeah um, so he'd come home when I first got my license with like a like a like a truck and he's like hey this is your truck now and I'm like cool and then later on my brother had a car from him and then I just traded for that when my truck broke down yeah <laughs> so I'm just driving I'm I got a little Honda the and that's that car from the Honda got Civic it. that I've just traded through the family got it got it so I've never had a car payment before and it's kind of like it's getting towards the end of this year it's like 200,000 plus miles yeah you're it's thinking just, of a new car now it's just it's 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 on the last maybe six months I'm thinking I have with it so I've, I've just been looking into car stuff yeah and these car payments are insane and, I'm just and like, insurance and if shit. I've never paid a car payment before. And I'm like, all right, down payment. My insurance is going to go up. I have to re-register it. And I'll have a car payment. So I'm already thinking about my overhead as, as trying to survive in LA in the first place. Like yeah, yeah. Tack on this and this and this and this just to have a new car. I'm like, I don't know. I, I see like the new, the new paper plates all over the place right now. I'm like, yeah. How, I'm like, how do people, how do people buy cars? Yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, I feel like a lot of people get help from their parents, honestly, and I feel like most people don't even say I mean, it. Everybody can't have help from their parents. No, uh, absolutely. I think absolutely. it's more of an expected expense where people just assume they have to, like they've always had a car payment. They've factored it into their payments forever. For sure, through budgeting, and yeah. it's just something you pay for, and, that, and they just like, oh, I can afford 300 a month because that's what I've always paid toward my car. Perhaps. Yeah, yeah. It is a, nat a more natural state of... Um, like you just got to get used to it in the sense of planning for it, and then other than that, it'll play it'll play out for itself. Yeah. As long as it's budgeted, it's the most important thing. It's just annoying. But anyway, I'm curious about um, your childhood. My childhood, yeah. Because uh, you mentioned you moved to the states when you were seven. Mm -hmm. You moved from Iran. Iran. And I'm I moved my with my mom. My dad didn't get a visa, so he didn't come for like a year and a half mm -hmm. later. Which I gotta say, during that moment, is I think where I became a mama's boy, was when I was really surviving with my mom. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have any money, so we were just living at my uncle's apartment. Um, and he 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 delivers pizza during the night and is a paralegal during the day, so he doesn't really oh, have like a full-on crazy lucrative job. Um, so I I just remember like. Not to say that like we were that poor essentially, but I remember like my mom not wanting to like spend money on like random shit like a candy bar for me or things like that just because it it would it wouldn't it wouldn't break the bank, but it would not be like a val valuable spending. Yeah, um, that's smart. Yeah, so those were just like interesting things to pick up as a childhood because I kind of feel like I saw my mom. They were both. She was a dentist in Iran, so she had to take all of her exams again when she came to America. Mm -hmm. She failed like once, I think, or twice. So I got to see some challenging moments with my mom trying to restore her identity, um, 
and into like growing it. And I feel like seeing some challenges and then seeing her kind of create like her empire with like a dental office essentially yeah. uh, was like a success story for me. Um, and it just showed me like more about like determination and hard work. And perseverance and... And resilience. Yeah. Like all of that. Because I guess the idea there was that her identity was a dentist. She moved and then the failings of the test made her doubt the fact that maybe that's who she wasn't going to be Yeah, and also, like, the rule of coming to a new country is, like, you can't, you got to retake all the exams. It's like, it's like a stripping of your identity in a way. Um, And she was a dentist for, I think, like, 15 years in Iran. She she was the head of a department in the hospital because the hospitals, dental offices were in hospitals in in Iran. Mm. So she had, she was in charge of, like, multiple dentists. Um, And then she comes here and she's, like, you know, being told to redo all of it. Yeah. Um, that all being said, like, I, I got to kind of, like, see her come to a point. And I think my, my childhood was, was really focused on science and math and never on literature, English, film, art, culture. My parents completely ignored those things. They were never really, really big on religion either. So really it was just focusing on, like, becoming a doctor is what they would say. And, you know, I, I, I kind of followed that through all the way into college. I got my degree in chemistry. Um, currently I'm a registered dental assistant, so I got my license for that when I was okay. like 18. I did, I did everything right. It was after I got that license to be a registered dental assistant is when I told them I want to do art, like I want to do film. Uh, and that wasn't a fun conversation either. It was a lot of crying, a lot of like disowning. Like crying on your side or crying on their side? Both. 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 You um, down and, and them being let down? Yeah, yeah. In a way. Um, I gotta say, like all of that is a lot of the issues. I think one of the things that I have is identity, and I think coming from a Persian culture, supposed to live like a Persian lifestyle, to then seeing an American culture, growing up really created this polarization on identity, on who am I, which version of am I supposed to be, and you know, even like wanting parents want to be a doctor, and then specifically a dentist, and then switching it over to wanting to be a filmmaker. It's loss of identity. I do think through film I have regained my identity. By that I mean again not really film as a medium itself but to feel like an expressionist as an artist to be able to voice myself that is what's given me identity. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. I feel very identical. (laughs) That's a word. (laughs) Um, Yeah other than that I, I, I do say I came from a good family. What, what was it like? Because okay. I guess, like, in general conversation, to break down my own thought process. Yeah, here, for sure. I'm always trying to think about the similarities. I'm like, okay, cool, I could relate in this way and relate in this way. Absolutely. So I'm, I'm kind of curious about um, before the move, um, what what you recall about living in Iran, and how what what you learned from from that stage of your life and how it affects you now or anything like that or how you see the world or how you're different from Americans that, that grew up here like what that I, changes in you yeah yeah I would say Iran less so I mean I don't I remember going to like my first day of kindergarten in Iran I remember learning how to spell my name my parents name my entire family's name in Farsi uh, mm-hmm. and then we moved and then I completely forgot how to spell everyone's name except my name in Farsi. And, sure. and so to this day, I actually speak fluently, 
but can't uh, read or write. And that actually got broken during that time of when I moved from Iran to America. So culturally, everything that I've like followed between the difference of this Iranian lifestyle has just been under the house, like under the roof, with, living with my parents and my grandma. Um, biggest one is my grandma, obviously, because she hasn't switched to, she doesn't know any English, she hasn't switched into an American world at all. She's really stuck to whatever she was doing in Iran, just here now. Um, so I, I, I guess what, I think what I got through the experience is more about an understanding of the cultural differences and how that shouldn't actually define us so specifically to our identity it's important to understand culture because there needs to be an education of understanding so that there could be some sense of relatability, some sense of, um, like to get an idea of where someone is coming from. That's why I think culture is so important. But I think also it's, it's, it's really hit in the head with culture and religion as a combo. And I think people, um, what I've been seeing it at least, that I didn't get to have, was like they just take it to heart so much where, um, not to really bring religion into this, but... A lot of religion in text is read specifically, I think. And I think cultures are, are held to a standard very specifically. And I think what that causes for people who are not really knowing who they are or anything about themselves is you're not letting them figure that out, uh, which is kind of what I kind of got put into. I, I was born into the family as a Muslim. Parents never put religion on me. And then I became atheist, agnostic, deist, went through a different versions of it. And now what I am, and it's because of Roberta from the mom from Bated Breath. Okay, yeah. After set, she handed me a book called The Winning Life, and it was an introduction to Buddhism. Okay. And so I took that. I, I, I read that book, and a while, a uh, couple months after, uh, I hit her up, and uh, I'm now a Buddhist, actually. Like, I actually okay. got, like, the certificate. I'm fully in it. My Gohansen's right in that room. Nice. Yeah, so... That's actually, I think, more of me, again, discovering identity through my own. One of the biggest reasons of coming to that was not having mom and dad tell me I need to be Muslim. Mm -hmm. You know, like, figure it out for yourself and yeah, yeah, yeah. all that. And so when I, that's what I mean about, like, the specificity of... So, so, so are you saying that that's not... Just touch the mic. So are you saying um, your parents' approach... Is that uncommon from the, the American like, culture? Would it be is it right to say American culture? Yeah, American culture is fine. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what I'm asking, but in in some way, I feel like my parents and I I I think that they did this indirectly, by the way. Like, I don't really think that they, I just don't think There's that they, no they didn't really yeah. think it through. I mean, yeah. that's a classic parental approach. You're just, you're just doing stuff. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I think it was just, it's me kind of like discovering it on my own because I'm, I have a circle of Christian friends mm -hmm. and I'm just seeing that a lot of their influence is through the idea that they went to church at a young age and they were given rewards, affirmations, just encouragement yeah. whenever they, you know, from their parents, whenever they, like, went to church, speak well about the religion, all that kind of stuff. And I think as a kid, your brain is being stimulated by that, and so that reality really forms. And I didn't get my parents telling me about uh, studying the Quran or anything so specific yeah. to keep me open 
to my experience. I, one thing I, I like snuck in there was like, I think what they taught me was really great morals. And I think they taught me a good code of ethics. And that's because they have that naturally, is just being human beings. That I think was more of my religion. Because I think that's what religion is for people, yeah, is morals I guess, and I ethics. I guess like, if, you, if you would have stayed in Iran, would the culture itself influenced you? Uh-huh. Okay, so your parents kind of stood out. And that's a good, my, yeah. good point to bring on. That was the biggest reason why my mom wanted to move, um, was that she, didn't, she wanted that opportunity. She wanted more opportunity. America is the land of opportunity. And to this day, you know, like, America's pretty shitty with things that's going on. But I got to say, as an immigrant, I still think that this country is pretty fucking great. Mainly because if you really do look at other countries, we are still pretty like free. We are still living a, a simple life. It's just it's it's the scopes of where you look at it from. I know I have friends that are yeah. in India who are saying the same thing about America still being a great country, just because we've seen the other end of that. Yeah. Um, it is. It's a privilege to live here, honestly. No, for sure. No, I, I agree. It's kind of I don't. I can. I don't want to segue out of out of the conversation yet, but I was going to jump to social media and its effect on the perception of the country. But I'm, we could uh, talk about that. I have, I, I have opinions on that too. <laughs> <laughs> but I was going to comment really quick. I guess like the the way that I related, it it feels very similar in ways where I'm like, I grew up. It's it's like smaller moves in that, but it's like all right, cool. I grew up in in New Mexico around like all of my family in, yeah. in like a small town where like a lot of my family like uh, uh, the I'll call them the elders yeah 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 just older than my parents on both sides kind of spoke Spanish and gotcha. like a lot of Spanglish and stuff and then um, and then we moved kind of around the same time I was I don't know what age second grade is mm -hmm. but like That's, that was around time for me yeah, too so we moved from there to Nevada to Reno when I was in second grade and then I was kind of separated from, like that, like like my grandparents were super religious, and I was mm -hmm. in the church, and the Spanish was kind of being an influence on me a little bit. And then leaving that, kind of forced a different, like I grew up with a different identity than I would have if I stayed there. Yeah. So I feel kind of similar there. And then I also went the, the more, the engineering route versus the creative route. Yeah. Through college. Was that because of parents' pressure by any chance, or did you have like well, an interest in it? It was more of, uh, I don't know if, it might have been the parents, it might have been me just also trying to be smart about my own decisions too, knowing that the success rate in, in creative fields is slow. <laughs> slow. It's low. <laughs> versus, versus the mining engineering field that yeah. I was going into, it's like there's very little people are going into that field, so yeah. the chances of success are very high. Yeah, and the pay is kind of high right out of the gate. Yeah, so I kind of I kind of did it more for secure security. Yeah, it's like all right, let me let me go the the smart route, and then uh, and then later on when I've when I've got some some nice cash savings and some bearings, I can I can explore Break out. the creative. Yeah, but um, I thought yeah. of that too. <laughs> yeah, that was that was my thing that I had to bail on, but. Yeah, that, that I'm, I'm glad that we made our shift, man. Like, I think to see you work and to see you do film, and I don't, I don't want to speak of me, but like to see us both like do this art, and to know that we did leave something behind to do it. Like, I kind of know every day that I kind of made the right decision, mm -hmm. just because I understand the process of it. Like, as long as I just need an investor to give me money, <laughs> and I will do my best into <laughs> executing it. But 
it was even just to believe that idea of like, can I execute it? Back when we were like in that field of you know engineering or for me like science and stuff, like yeah. that that idea was a lot a lot further to me than it is now. Like no, I sure. totally have confidence in knowing that I could do this field, like do this art, do this business. So it's just crazy to see where we where we come to now. No, I think that does play a big part. I don't I don't know why it plays. Because I, I, I try to think about the people, like I'm, I'm always impressed in a way with people that know they want to do a thing so early on. I'm like, how did you know sure. directing was a thing? Right. How did you know? And they just go right into film school or like whatever right. they think right. the track is. Or, right. And I'm like, dang, I didn't know. I didn't even know script supervisor was a thing until I was like 24, 25. Yeah, yeah. How like I couldn't have planned to be where I am now when I was seventeen. Yeah. Like I, what? Because I didn't grow. I don't have anybody in. I'm, I'm some, yeah. Yeah, I don't have anyone in the film that could have introduced me to yeah. to things before jumping in. So I think it's cool. Yeah. Very very cool. It it just shows how this is a people, um, how it's like a all connection based industry. Yeah. It's like words of other people are so important to be recommending you to other clients. Other, I got to say, shout out to Frankie Manos. <laughs> he was definitely, after having him in my first short film, he was the connection to all of this for me, to ADing, yeah, to everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was through him. Yeah, you never know who and what or why or you yeah. just kind of work with cool people you like. and Relation, You build relationships yeah. with people That's and it. it just does it for you. Yeah. <laughs> More relationships. The more relationships, the merrier it is. So you're. I, this is a bad segue, but to go to the social media. Yeah, yeah, earlier yeah. On the, the way that it's impacting. Yeah, we, can just, we can talk social media in general, the future of social media, what it's doing. Because like the weird thing about social media is that we're still. Because if you think about the history books or like or a history in general. Mm -hmm. And we're still so early on in, in social media and how it's regulated and how who's involved in it. Yeah. So if like you jump like a hundred years or whatever, it's like yeah. it's like what like I wonder what's the future of it look like? Is it even gonna be a thing? What are I, we doing with it now? I think this I think this needs to be gone in order for social media to leave. Are you now. talking about like the Elon Musk way of putting in your head? The Neuralink? <laughs> I do think that, that actually is going to be the next step is where we don't even have a phone, but we still have all the same applications accessible to us. But more of what I mean in, I guess what I mean is what I really think in order to restore a healthy society, everyone should just go to a flip phone. Maybe a phone with a keyboard like a Blackberry, but this, this, this device, and it's not going to happen because of the value of this device and what it could now do, you know? Like if you actually, Elon Musk is a perfect example of someone who I just recently watched an interview with, with Axios. The man does all his stuff from his iPhone. Like he, he'll literally just sit behind a desk and just is texting people, reading things, seeing reports, because it's a computer that's accessible to him. So I feel like it's a double-edged sword where there's, so, there's such a great value to it. But I think mental health-wise, which is really my case on social media and how it affects like the mental, the mental mind yeah, with yeah. it, is we are corrupting and shaping the future of younger generations to be not having the same perspective that I think you and I were growing up on. Um, and I, I kind of mean people who are like right now in middle school, early high school, even elementary, who are carrying iPads with them. I think those people are going to see the world 
completely more differently. And by that, I also mean it in two cases. The great way is that I think they're going to become really great innovators. I think the access to technology is the great, the next way to innovation and a great way of entrepreneurship. Sure. I think they're going to have maybe higher suicides when they continue to get older as a downfall of the great innovation that they're going to be able to have. I think they're going to have more depression. They're going to have more um, anxiety. All of that is just going to be 10 times greater than what you and I could be experiencing from seeing the rise of social media. Um, from I remember the first time I got Instagram, it was in middle school, I think. Um, and I was not even into it. I hate it. I thought, I don't even take pictures all day. Like, I need to take pictures every day to post and use this app. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah. But now it's turned into a news source. Now it's turned into... Now it's turned into me getting a music video career, a music video opportunity from it because I'm DMing directors that are a little bit more high caliber sure, sure. that a lot of people wouldn't be able to contact when a phone, when Instagram or other things didn't exist. So again, I'm saying the pro and the con to it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so how do you? So being being everything that you know about the cons of of using such such a a media medium. Mm -hmm. uh, how do you navigate those waters? Spiritually, I think uh, meditation, uh, a lot of stillness, and a lot of downtime with not trying to use it. Mm -hmm. um, oh, I wish I sent you one of my. Uh, you once asked me if I could. Did I ever send you my screen time? No, you never did. Oh shit! No, you never did. I was very down to do that. Cause I put up that challenge about like. Uh huh. I saw of, that. Yeah. yeah. Um, what, what was yours at? You know, I was like at three four, and a half hours or something. Oh no, I'm. I, I think like right now I'm at ten hours, which what? is high. But that was because of the. I'm looking right now. No, no, no. Um. Th this thirty. Oh, I'm down thirty-three percent right now from last week. But daily average is six hours and fifty-nine minutes right now. It's a lot. Yeah, because. Just, uh, yeah, the iPhones, you have an iPhone, right? Yeah. Yeah, because they have the weekly reports that kind yeah. of break down what apps you're using and how often the screen's on and yeah. how often you even pick it up. Like, all those, all that data is in there, which yeah. is kind of cool. I think using that data to control yourself, using data to really give yourself the information and that accurate research to know how much you're interacting with your phone is, I yeah, think, yeah. the key to... Distancing it as well. Yeah, I mean that's what I use because I'm I'm a big fan of, of numbers. So it's like, oh cool, I'm I'm more aware of when I have it open. I'm like, wait, all right, do I really need to scroll through Instagram? Yeah, right now? yeah. Say no, no, no. I'm like, I'm I'm good. I don't want to I don't want to up the numbers. Right, you're right. Yeah, so I, I have those. That, thoughts, that full, um, my my excuse. <laughs> One thing I was trying to say with Instagram is the best thing about the app. Yeah. Is it's it's pe people use it for their work, but people also use it for their breaks. And I think that's how I was able to contact that director to work with her, was because it's created a, a place of where no matter what position you are, caliber you are in the industry, you're either gonna have, you're gonna eventually gonna have to take a break. So you're gonna scroll through Instagram to give that like little break from whatever you're doing to check Instagram. Boom, there's like work now on that app too. So it's kind of collided, I think, um, break time and work time into one device. And it comes down into individual person on how they actually take advantage of it that I think shapes more. I think, like we said, there's really no way of, I think, getting rid of it. I think what's here is here. It's only going to evolve and get greater. 
So I think what we need to have is at least, I, will, I, I mean this in support, as like a support group. There needs to be support groups that could, you even, I think, posting that, I think on Facebook about the, can I see the daily average and stuff, that curiosity yeah. that you had. I think if more people are thinking to that degree, I think we will be able to let the app grow, but not let ourselves get spiraled down into it yeah. and, and get sucked into yeah, it. I, I only had one person send me their... Oh, wow. Yeah, nobody did it publicly, too. Like, I, I kind of imagined... But it's kind of like a weird place to find out on your phone, too. It's not really the... Like, you actually have to look... You have to know it exists. And yeah, you for sure, really for know. sure. But, like, I, um, I, I ideally imagine, like, four or five or six people are just like, oh, yeah, here's mine, here's mine. I yeah. can't believe I use it for seven hours. Or, like, whatever the thing yeah. is. Yeah. Like, nobody. Which which shows, like, people, they, them themselves know that they're, like, obsessed with it. They're There's, like, a, what, like a guilty, like a guilty conscience. It says a lot about a person, too, I think, in, in a way. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It but really I, does. I definitely judge people. For, I'm like, whoa, how do you spend 11 hours on your, or yeah. whatever the thing would be. But it's more of, like, I feel like it's a, almost like a parental thing. It's like, get off your phone, enjoy, enjoy the world, go out and play, like that, yeah. whole, that whole kind of thing. Again, it goes, it's how you use it, because I understand people who are using it a lot when they're like, when their job entails for them to be making money off the app. Yeah. So, to, to a degree, it's understandable, but I, I do think that it's, it's corruption at the end of the day, too. I mean, for me, what do you, when we got into this topic, I think the idea of how fake news travels through Instagram. And what I mean by fake news, just to give you the most simplest way of how I try to do it, is I took pictures of houses and I said, I bought this house and I bought that house. And then I took another picture of a house and I'm like, I bought this house for my friends. All of them just provide food. That was through your story. That was through my story. And people were responding to me, dude, congrats on the house. And then I kind of made a post about it. Like, you're believing what you're seeing on the internet. Mm -hmm. It was after I saw like people were buying, buying this. And it was just through their story. And, I, and I'm only thinking in a small scale of myself, having a small following to have that kind of reaction. So if you're like this crazy media outlet and you're sharing all this news about, let's say, Black Lives Matter, defunding the police, all of these stuff, how much misinformation are people actually, even though if you're not intending it to be like misinformation, mm-hmm. how much is it being comprehended as misinformation because of the person receiving that, that image? So I feel like that's where we're also going in a like in this really uh, incredible, miscommunicative mm-hmm. societies because everyone's leading everything to an interpretation of their phone or how they perceive yeah, it I, on their I, phone. I had, here, I'm going to actually pull it up. I almost made a whole like blog post about that. Um, it was about trust in society and how that's crumbling. Mm-hmm. Um, where is that? I, have, I broke it down. Oh, here it is. I, I broke it down into five levels of how information goes from a source and yeah. ends up on your feed. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'll just go through it really quick. Mm-hmm. Yeah, go. All right, I guess, uh, where do I start? I'll start at level one mm-hmm. where you see the post. Let's say you're on Facebook or Instagram, somebody shares an article. Mm-hmm. So then already there you have you, as a person seeing it, are now thinking about who's a post, who's a person who's sharing it, and what's the headline that they're sharing. And say, like, all right, cool. Now, the person who's sharing the article usually also attaches some sort of opinion to the article, 
So all right, I'm reading an opinion of an article that this person just shared. So that's level one. And level two is the article itself and the headline. And the headline is usually created by not even the person that wrote the article. It's developed to get clicks. Yes. And it has nothing to really even do with trying to get yeah. the information out in a productive way. Yeah. So then, so then, all right. I guess to go back to like then I have to think about all right is a person reading the article or are they just kind of reacting from the headline itself? That's so, that's the third one. No, no, that's that's still the that's second built one. Into level that's three. level two. Okay, got it, got it. Level three is the article. The article. So all right, you had the the post, the headline. Now you have the article. After you click on the thing, you check out the article, and it'll often like for like coronavirus, like it'll mention data, right, and then. They are normally commenting on the data that they looked into. Yeah. So now you're getting an interpretation or a simplification of the data, and they don't often show the data. It's just like the data shows this, and this is the trend. And it's yeah. Like, all right. Well. It's a summary. It's a summary of the numbers essentially. Yeah. So then it's like, all right. Well, now. All right. Which data did they pick from? how are they manipulating this data now to tell the narrative that they're trying to get across? So it's like, okay, cool. Yeah. And as a storyteller, we always know that something might have to be slightly manipulated to be able to fit that narrative, exactly. at least in a news form they, they kind of way. they could ignore some data. Yeah. They could only look at the specific, whatever. Yeah. So then level four is the data itself. All right, which data do they look at? And how is that being... How is the data being collected? Who's collecting the data? And like that whole kind of thing. Like there's um, some articles that came out that I that I that I found as examples in case I was going to do this thing, but I don't even remember what they are. But it's misreporting of data. Like I don't know. It's a general thing. But sometimes the data you actually mm -hmm. get has an agenda behind receiving the data. Mm -hmm. So like, can I trust the data? Mm -hmm. And then level five. Is oh I guess it's kind of the, the same thing. Well, I guess level four is just the way the the. All right, when you think about data, this is still level four. You get a collection of numbers, and they have to put it in some sort of visual form of like a graph sure. or some sort of timeline to mm -hmm. help. And you can you can you can frame a graph again to tell a narrative. And you can create bars that look taller than they actually are because the numbers over here are stretched out, or like whatever. You can overemphasize a message through yeah. the showing of the data. Yeah, it's all visual. <laughs> so then, so then the the last layers, like I kind of said, level five is the uh, incentives to report. So are these the, the things that you would want to say, like the five uh, questions to ask every time you see some sort of article, every so time you see it's some? Just, there's too much to think about when somebody shares a thing that it's. It's hard to have a conversation about a thing because it's like there's too much involved in the thing itself. Yeah. To like, all right, well, I can't. It's hard to debate you. You can't debate on Facebook. You know how that goes. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think if every person could go through these five questions every time they're about to read an article, we would be in a better place. The issue is no one is, I think, willing to even do that. And I'm not saying that. Like I even do that. I I would say I'm I fall into the people who just kind of like look at it, look at the headline, and is just making interpretations of it. I don't get so attached to it where if someone has an alter opinion, I'm gonna start creating chaos like for them or against yeah. them. 
But I feel like the idea of where news has gone is into an issue with this. It, the, the more I'm even also like looking into it, I mean, have you heard of like the, how like in Afghanistan, a way that they're actually using to like help the students, or what I mean by students, kids that are like, let's say younger in Afghanistan, to like kind of prevent them from joining like a Taliban or anything like that is like through propaganda in their newspapers, where they have like comics of like American soldiers helping Afghanistan like citizens and stuff to help train the mind of these kids so that they don't like join, you know, like a terrorist yeah, group yeah, for instance. Yeah, yeah. They're not, they're, they're doing it like through a psychology of it. I feel like the news has, I think I, that tactic is now being used indirectly because of social media where everything is being manipulated for the train of thought for that person who has a certain belief. Well, uh, I don't think it's indirect. Do you think, well, I, what I mean by indirect is, you're right, I don't think it's indirect. I, I, I mean, what I meant to say with indirect was I don't think Instagram ever intended on becoming like that. Hmm. And that's the indirect re response to yeah, in, yeah. like the app. But yeah, I, I do think, the, the reason why I think it's not indirect anymore is because it's clickbait. There's, there's money flowing behind it. It works, and it works. Yeah, so it's very direct. So I guess I guess the moral of the story is all we can do is, as individuals is really take a moment to if if you do form an opinion on something sometimes it's good to look into that thing yeah cite other sources kind of check on who's reporting who's the friend that's sharing it oh this friend usually is you know pretty cray they always put this weird stuff out and they have weird beliefs no, yeah or I don't know about weird but like you you can. It's easy to spot friends that you can tell aren't doing the research. It's like, oh, that's a surface level opinion. Yeah. Versus friends, it's like, oh, they're actually adding new ones in there, and I can see where they're coming from. Yeah. And let me look into this further or whatever. Yeah. But I guess that's kind of. But I don't know. I was kind of curious as to you mentioned uh, meditation and. Yeah. Spirituality in terms of your approach. Yeah, I always got to say whenever I go through like a toxic feeling with like social media, for instance. How often is that? Um, it, it is, it was a, it was much more of a thing when I did not mute people. I've officially like mute people. On Instagram. On Instagram, specifically. Um, just to avoid taking that energy. I think I really, when I say spirituality, I mean that we have inputs and outputs. And the, the input that we're taking from our phone is that toxicity. And I think that kind of comes from certain people that we follow, all, all these other things. We don't want to unfollow them, all that other stuff. So mute them. But uh, that kind of that input is kind of what affects us or affects me. Meditating is like me taking that input that I got and using it as my output yeah. by meditating. It's yeah. kind of, I always say, like, I got to meditate the shit out of me. Like, yeah, yeah. that's kind of the way of... And it's easy. I think meditating, people take it as like this thing of where they need to be doing this, like they need to be just in this like transcendental moment this entire time. Yeah. But I think meditating in the most simplest way is sitting still. Stillness is like the number one thing about meditating. And when you're doing that, yes, your mind, your mind will wander into different avenues and stuff, but you then coming to a point of like, what am I doing? I'm just sitting still allows you to realign with meditating again, you know, always coming back to it. Um, those who are actually going to this transcendental world with it, are, I've been doing it for 10 years, 14, 20 yeah, yeah, yeah. years. So 
it's a practice, it's a muscle that you gotta be training to really go into um, your subconscious, I, I gotta call it. But I think that people get discouraged of meditation because they don't reach that immediately when they do it for the first time. Yeah, I guess I, well I would, I would also ask, um, one, because I, I think I meditate sometimes. Yeah. So yeah. I guess instead of uh, the, um, you said kind of the, the stillness helps you get into meditative state. For me, it's almost the uh, the the menial task of, or like a, a repetitive task that kind of has me not thinking. Like a mantra, saying something. No, I mean or... like okay. One thing I talked about this with Michael, but one thing that I do every day is um, I start my morning with picking up trash around my neighborhood. So it's like a boring task where I have my, my trash picker reacher arm in my bag, and I'm just kind of going around every morning. Very cool. And uh, I found that it's kind of like a meditative morning exercise for me where I'm not really thinking about anything as I'm out there. It's just like, all right, like, trash is showing up again. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Yeah, yeah. Or like, whatever. But mostly it's just like... It's a, it's so a mind, mundane so task. My mind, my mind kind of wanders and I'm yeah. able to kind of like process differently. Yeah. And kind of, I feel like it's a... I do that. I feel this with doing dishes. Yeah. I don't mind doing dishes. Um, <laughs> like I, I like the warm water. I like all of it. Like sure. in, in the case of, I just feel like when I am really just lost into my thought, medit like doing the dishes can yeah. be very meditative too. Oh, for sure. Um, so I don't know if it's, I don't know for you if it, if it sends you to a, same, a similar place or if it's gotten like a it's like a because it's not necessarily the same objective like you're you're sitting down with the objective of the meditation versus the dishes it kind of just there's a version of it that probably happens I don't know. yeah I with the idea of the meditation it is definitely going with intent to meditate and to be still uh, I combine it with a couple of things I do it with my chanting for Buddhism mm -hmm. it's all done in that corner. Uh, it's done with my chanting for Buddhism. It's done uh, uh, with just meditating with stillness of repeating a mantra the entire time, uh, which would kind of is what you were saying when you when I kind of um, I had kind of interrupted you when you're saying like repeating something, mm -hmm. repeating a word is really helpful. And when you notice your brain just scattered there, and you just say that word, and it'll just slowly align back together. And I, that's one thing that I do. And then the last thing on how I end my morning routines would be breath work. Um, and I have an app that is good for breath work where like it shows you like the circle coming up mm -hmm. and then going away so yeah, you could yeah. feel out uh, yeah. your inhales and exhales. That's a combination of what I would say I package into a meditation session would be like all of that. Mm -hmm. um, and I got to say like it's better if I do it every single day religiously not questioning if I feel like I would want to do it or not. Yeah. And I would say if I do that, I think I would always remain remain more stoic throughout the day, no matter what kind of challenge is thrown at me. But currently I'm still learning that for myself because I notice that I really take it aggressively to meditate if my life is in shit for a moment, you know, if I'm in a bad mood. And I kind of want to say that's great that people do it for those reasons and that I'm doing it for those reasons, but it really is doing meditating even when your life is great. Yeah, regardless. If, yeah, it's, that, it's, a main, it's maintaining that practice in the highs and the lows. That would actually change. I'm a big fan of consistency. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're a fan of accountability. Those two yeah, usually exactly. go together. <laughs> consistency and accountability. You can accomplish a lot, but just 
with those Indeed. that combo. So. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, can we talk about, because we're actually, yeah, I don't know how much time we have left. Yeah, but, dude, I'm I'm all good. I love this conversation. I love you have love you being here. This is a great conversation. Can we talk about? Uh, I wasn't sure which, if you had anything to say about bated breath because um, uh, we could talk about that. That was because you mentioned that it's just it's finishing up the the edit. Yeah. And uh, how that journey's been? How I don't know if there's any. If, cause we've talked about it before. I don't know if uh, it's worth. Re if you could remind me of what we talked or what you remember from what we talked about before, I could aim better in. Because um, I don't know, it's it's been in the it's been in post for how long now? Like almost a year. The whole project has been like a two year thing, from crowdfunding it yeah. to figuring out the shooting dates, shooting it, and editing it and stuff. Dang. Yeah. So overall, the same length that it takes to do a feature film movie, I did on a short film. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess I guess this is almost more for the listeners than for me. But yeah. If you want to talk about um, the story itself, and then because I I always get fascinated fascinated with entering into a project and then how one feels about it at the end of the project. Because it's like, all right, we're here to tell the story, and then did you tell the story? How do you feel about that? And then is it? Kind of yeah, because you come from it from a different perspective from when you when you work on something for totally times. A hundred percent. All those things. Um, yeah, I I would say the the story is about anxiety and not only anxiety for the person that kind of has it, but like the ripple effect on the family members mm -hmm. around it mm -hmm. too, and how that's kind of portrayed. Um, and I, I I think the film has two versions to be honest with you. There is like a more hero's journey version, uh, and then there's more like an indie leaving it off with a message, not really focused on the complete ending kind of message. Um, I would say I'm, I'm as a the director, I didn't really have more like executive power on this film, so my version as like the director's cut would be like the leaving it off with a message, and I think the the version that will go into a festival circuit and stuff, and will be probably like screen and stuff, will be the hero's version, the hero's journey. Okay, it's a complete uh, story in this one. It kind of it has a, it kind of ends on more of like a completion rather than just like the version that I want. It kind of leaves you feeling a little bit more about why is this happening yeah, yeah, yeah. And in the in this world. Whereas with the other one, you kind of do get to see how the character really ends up feeling at the end of it. Um, it it completes her arc. Uh, completes her arc. My voice cracked. <laughs> um, where I would say the version that I like is a discovery that happened on set with the actress doing her own thing that I think the only thing I did right in that moment was not yelling cut too soon and just letting the camera roll. And we captured that. And it was not expected. And that organicness to it is why I love it so much. While as the other version, it was exactly planned how we were wanting to do it. It's very scripted. It was exactly like how we saw it. Um, so at the end, to get an experience to where I saw that other discovery and how it makes me feel and how I like it a lot more is what gave me more understanding of needing to let that process be collaborative and understood within that space of when you're on set. And it's kind of letting the actors feel that comfortability to get to, get to that. And I did not ever kind of have that planned. And where I would say 
that's like the biggest, I think, uh, contrast of where I would see, like, I had all these ideas, all these shots I wanted to, everything that I wanted to get before we made the movie, and then the reality of really what you got mm -hmm. and what it ended up, and like, it, it right. surprises me, actually, to be really honest, as like a filmmaker, that you could still cut a story together with whatever you, with what you get as far as the assets that you, yeah, from yeah. the shooting, um, which kind of relieved me, because it really just showed, like, the story's made in editing. Yeah, all you're doing is just getting the assets. It's a plus and also a minus too. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I guess to interject really quick. Yeah. About my script supervisor life mm -hmm, mm -hmm. is because I'm thinking about coverage a lot. Yeah. About what the what the script is and trying to honor that for the director. Yeah. Sometimes the director doesn't care too much about the script. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, are you sure you don't want this thing? Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm like you're rechanging the entire story if you don't shoot it. Like, this way. Yeah. Yeah. So then I think about, but then I'm like. This director's made like eight other films. They're not worried about, like they 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 don't edit it themselves. They just like you know they're done at the yeah at, on set. So it's kind of a so it goes back into if you me. if you know the integrity of the story, yeah. then like in some ways it allows a little bit more flexibility on the day of the shoot to know what to do, what to get, what not to get. Um, I, I I do feel like at the end of the day, like a director that kind of is going to shoot himself in the foot if he doesn't look at the script because it's the blueprint to the to the structure of the film. I think everything that you get in the set of like shooting it in principal photography is getting all the tools you need to make it better editing session for your editor. Mm -hmm. um, I was going to yeah. I almost cut you off there to tease you with the, or herself. You said uh, <laughs> or herself <laughs> is no, that's right. I I said himself just for clarification because of thinking about myself. <laughs> But yes, or herself. Um, but sorry, okay, so yeah, so all right, so you've got different. There's what that different variation thing is something that I haven't had to deal with before too. How is it? How is it as a director editor mm -hmm. having to take like kind of almost like studio notes with like what they want versus like what's that? Oh, that was a challenge for me. Because um, you you had to do that before on previous projects too. No, because I, this is actually something that I actually wrote in my notes I wanted to talk to you about. It was like, like self-funded projects, mm -hmm. like your own version of self-funded projects, and then working for someone who is self-funding their own project. Mm -hmm. It does have a, there's a difference. Change things. And I, again, I think the difference that I didn't see when I first took on the project was the level of ambition that I had. You know, I just got out of college. I had finished at that time Aggressive Species, which is my first short, um, and I did not at that point was really, was not really happy about that, and just was hungry for this a new opportunity to take it on. And uh, Bated Breath came on to me because I was ading a short film, and the main actress was able to send me the script, and I read it. Replied that same night, like I really want to do this, and we met. And the kind of the story it's kind of it's history now because we're now in this position where the movie's made, but the ambition that I had was so high that I was willing to go do anything to be able to get another opportunity to direct mm -hmm. and edit and just create something. And as the process of this two years kind of went on, I really saw this thing between ambition versus pride versus hard work. Yeah, ego and all that stuff. All of that. And, and then you get to see it also on other people's end. You know, the person who's funding the project with, the, with liquid money, the person who's funding the project with their time, so it became a whole battle on who do you say has final cut when you kind of want to say 
well, I put more time into it, and the other person says, well, I put more money into it. And not the natural way of that is the liquid money. You know, that, that actually does carry more weight. I always thought of myself, like, if I was the person who was giving the money into this, I would be also wanting to get the most control out of it, for sure, taking away the idea of time is irrelevant. But nevertheless, time and money is the same exact thing, I think. It just depends on who is on the other end to see the value of it. And some don't see it, and that's okay, because the world works like that. Yeah. And that's where I came to this idea of where, you know, having two versions is at least something that I'm very blessed for that I was able to get from the project. One version being a hero's journey and the other being like an extended yeah, version. Yeah, yeah. I at least got that, you know? Because if I had just gotten the hero's journey, I don't know how I would be able to swallow that pill yeah. knowing how much time I put into it and not having like an ending that I was satisfied with. Mm -hmm. how, so, would, how would you, is, with that experience behind you now, how would you handle a similar situation moving forward? Is there is there a conversation to be had at the totally. beginning that could have fixed all of that, or mm -hmm. how is that? Creating boundaries really early on and knowing how to create boundaries is another thing. Yeah. I think I, I I don't think I really knew how to, which is why I didn't do it appropriately. Well, because you're probably thinking about like as long as I get to direct this, indeed, hundred percent, it's a win. Yeah, hundred um, percent. So it really is about creating the boundaries and. Needing to understand more of the, the relationship that you have with the person who you're going to kind of decide to make a movie with, it's a long process. Mm -hmm. And you're going to be with them a lot. You're going to be working with them a lot. So you have to actually consider, do you enjoy yourself working with this person for that, long, that length of time? That, I think, is the number one question to just intuitively know. Um, and maybe by, if you don't feel that you can, but you still want to make the movie, that's where you need to meet with them learn how to create your boundaries with them, and still go through with making the project, because it's possible. Because yeah, yeah. I guess, even best case scenario, you are stoked to work with the person. There's yeah. still another conversation above that, with like, I know you're putting your own money into this. Yeah. How are we gonna, who's gonna, how do we edit this? Like, how, yeah, like establishing that up front yeah. sounds beneficial yeah. and it, difficult. It allows, but, but yeah. It, it, it allows you to know how much time you want to put into it, right? Mm -hmm. Like I put a lot of time yeah. into it in the sense that I kind of treated it as, as if it was my baby mm -hmm. and then realizing like, okay, yeah, it's not your baby. And you're you were adopting this for a while. You're, you're fostering right. it. <laughs> yeah, so you had, okay, yeah, I got what you mean. So if it was said to you early on, it's like, oh, because we're putting money in, we have Final Cut. And then you could have known before you even headed into production yeah. Kind of expectations on, in on in specificity to bated breath, there's a little bit more layers to that. Sure. There there is that is definitely one case of the layer of where the idea of final cut and who's putting money in, it, it was established, but it wasn't really fully stringed out. Mm -hmm. um, it was kind of more just surface layer talked about, gotcha. which is why there's all the other layers to it. But yeah. that experience definitely you know gave me a lift off into knowing so much more about the questions that need to be asked. Just me personally as a person wanting to take on the project and then the right questions to kind of form a more collaborative uh, partnership rather than a one-sided version of it. Mm -hmm. It It is one thing I've, I told our sound sound mixer uh, when we finished ADR for the film. Uh, I'm very blessed to have gone through this experience, but knowing what I know now, I wouldn't want to repeat that experience. I think right, it's just right, right. like a moving forward yeah, yeah, kind of for sure. style. For sure. Yeah.
But yeah, congrats on getting getting that done too. Dude, thank you. Yeah. It's been it's been I gotta say, I kinda find to for myself that it was worth spending this amount of time on it because it was one I, I mentioned I don't know if I ever said this to you, but it, there's a slight bureaucracy behind it, right? You got to send it to this person to get their notes because mm-hmm. it's th- that person's feedback is really valued. But that person takes forever to get their notes back, so you're just sitting on the project for a while. So like there was a lot of like this moment where because I was waiting, I was exploring the editing of it more, and then I was able to cut the movie, which was like 25 minutes during its first cut, to now 15 minutes, mm-hmm. and. I never, as a filmmaker, considering this is like my second short, never had to go through like a rigorous process of cutting a movie down in time because that means you got to cut lines, that means you got to cut reactions, which then changes the story's mood. So it's all about like figuring out the sweet spot between the story and the script of what it was, and then all of this assets, tools that you got on the day of shoot, and really honing it into what it needs to be similar to like the paper. So. That was like an experience that I don't think I would have gotten if I didn't have done this project. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I was just, you know, thinking about myself in terms of my reactions. I'm like, yeah, yeah, no, for sure. It was like, my, <laughs> that's what I've been saying a lot. But no, it sounds great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, and uh, I, it's, let's, let's kind of follow that track a little bit. Because um, I, I think, Experience is always a plus, and I'm curious to hear about. Do you, like your first film set, like narrative film set, where you're where you're walking on, and I don't know what experience you've had prior, but could we hear about um, my first set? Yeah, like your first set, like where, where there's actually people, there's a, there's a director stuff is moving you're there you have no idea what's going on mm-hmm. you're just like hoping mm-hmm, mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. not be found out or like yeah this was actually the kickoff to me wanting to be an ad frankie hits me up and says that there's this uh this youtuber named mikey murphy mm-hmm. who is doing a 48-hour film mm-hmm. project mm-hmm. and the catch is it's not with the 48-hour company he just wants to challenge himself like to do this movie yeah, in 48 yeah. hours yeah, yeah. um and I was like, yeah, sure. At this point, my just thinking about the scope of my ego, I was like, you know, just let him know that I could DP this. Like, I could shoot it for him. And then that was the set where I met Donald, actually, being the DP. That was the set where I got to see Donald work that made me realize I don't want to be a DP. Right, right, right. And for that set, I worked as an AD and a producer for Mikey. And that, that, right, that one project, it was called Perception, uh, created a crew for all of us. You know, this crew, by the way, is what helped me make my my movie Aggressive Species and then also Bated Breath. I brought the same crew members that were on that project that I met with Mikey onto Bated yeah, Breath yeah. as well. So just thinking about, again, relationships and how it just explodes and goes everywhere for you, it's crazy. Um, but working with Mikey, I think, was the first time that I got to actually see a more legit set. Granted, it was like, I think, uh, he, he was able to fund it uh, I think just because of his following and his caliber of who he is, um, I don't remember the exact budget, but I think it was close to like forty thousand for a short film. Okay. And he had that overhead because we were doing it in forty-eight hours, knowing that you're not gonna, you know, you're not gonna budget in forty-eight hours really how you want to budget. Mm-hmm. So he just had a good amount of overhead. But um, it was the first set of where I got to actually see what the director does, which is 
always working with the actors more than anything. Didn't really understood that when I was like directing Frankie in my movie. I was always oh, trying to right, tell right. what the camera should be, and I, I would be so miscommunicative in like telling him what to do, like his blocking and his positioning and his lines and all that. That it was like the first time to see more intimacy of a director connecting with their actors, mm -hmm. um, and that was you know that I think is a kickoff to understanding that really the one role that a director has that is in his job description or her job description. Uh, is, is to work with their actors intimately. Yeah. Um, trust and let them be able to also do their own thing too, but it's not worrying about the lighting or the camera. You, you have other people for that. So how, so you mentioned that you were aiding producing this thing. Mm -hmm. How did you know what your, how, how much experience did you have in that prior to None. being able to, so how did you handle, because an AD takes a lot of like. Responsibility. You've got to like, Hold your ground and know what you're doing for people to follow what you're. What you got yeah. Going. How did that end up working? Out uh, or? On, only because of the. I didn't do it like the best job. I we I made sure we got all of the stuff, and I was mainly in charge of scheduling. So I actually thank God, like I understand scheduling, where I had that logic yeah, yeah, in yeah. my head, yeah. where uh, he he gave me his like shot list, which was like on a piece of paper, and then I would not even use a computer. I would hand schedule everything with like times and stuff of when we should be out of it. Mm -hmm. um, and that was mainly of what I focused. I did not take the authoritative role of like telling people if they're working or not, or that they should go back to set. Frankie actually did a lot of that, okay, where he was because yeah. he's sense. such a he's such a personable guy. I did not know how to communicate or express myself in that moment, being on that job. But I knew how to schedule. Yeah, so you can. Yeah, yeah. so I was I was reliable for him in that sense, um, and that I think was more of where I just got exposed to ADing. I think after that is when I Googled what a first AD was, more specifically. Yeah. Um, thank God. <laughs> after <he'd>, the job. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't actually for the second job that Mikey brought a real producer to direct, or to produce his film, Andy, um, which was, I would say, more legit of me being an AD, where I did go tell people what to do. I, 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 uh, she taught me the calls, lock it up, roll sound, roll camera. She taught me, like, I have to focus on the background actors, and that's my job. Like, she's the one who actually gave me all the broke down. And I actually recently messaged her on LinkedIn saying thank oh, you nice. for all of that, and if she has any job oh, for me. <laughs> very cool. Yeah, but um, I would say, this, remember how we're talking about, like, the first is kind of like the school for all of us, the first thing we do, mm -hmm. first film. It's like your the film school. Films. Yeah. In in. <laughs> In, I mean, still, life is a film yeah. school, essentially. But in regards to someone who really taught me stuff, it was the producer, Liz. Mm -hmm. uh, not Liz, uh, Lisa is her name. She really taught me how to be an AD. And yeah, yeah. That, that took me on to more jobs from there. For sure. I guess, like, I think about, I, I guess I like to think about people trying to enter film for the first time and like how overwhelming it can kind of feel mm -hmm. because it still happens where you end up on a set and you're like oh my gosh these people have way more experience than me how could I how like they whatever like when you're new people see things almost I, I don't know think about it, like they identify that you're they're, new they're seeing they're seeing the code and uh -huh. you're just over here like trying to figure out what's going on yeah yeah you know so um I like to try to make film sets sound approachable for people. Yeah. Uh, like my first film set 
where it was like actually a, a real it was like a feature that I ended up on was back in Reno um, and it turns out the film was never released which happens a lot I, but, Got it. Uh, but regardless uh, I had made a lot of short films prior but I had never been on a set before and people knew that I was interested in film and this production came to Reno for like one day or two days and I'm like hey we're looking for volunteer PAs and uh, one of my buddies shared it, and I'm like, dude, yeah, super for sure. I'm like, yeah. come out. And I was the only one that showed up yeah, yeah. to volunteer PA for this yeah. production. And I'm like, yo, yeah, I've made some stuff. <laughs> hey. And uh, I remember the second AD um, took me to the first AD, and I was like, hey, we got this, we got this guy. He was down the PA for us. He's like, how much experience do you have? And I'm like, I mean, like, I, I don't know, like, just little little things. He's like, do you know what a hot brick is? And I'm like, no. And he's like, all right. It's the lingual. The lingual is what gets, I, I think, beginners, and me included, uh, the language that they set. Is, a, is set life has its own vocabulary. For sure. And if you don't know it, you so, stand out. So that, was like, that was like his quickie, just run down and figure out where I was. Yeah. Like, you know what a hot brick yeah. is? Yeah. He's like, okay, well, yeah, that's a fresh battery or whatever. Here, we're gonna yeah. we're gonna clip some on your belt, and off you go, or like whatever. Yeah. So, did they? Did you like from there on? You never stood in contact with them. Like none of them ever gave you any more jobs. They, uh, they never. Not not really. Out of that one, that one, I reconnected with that second AD when I moved to LA because she Tight. she's down here. She's like an actor director. Got does run stuff all the time. Got it. Got it. And uh, I never. Never, never really reconnected. I'd say, hey, but I felt like there, there wasn't really like, oh, what's up? You're here, Come right? Out. That op, that, that, that slot that, to like so, ask. So it never yeah. happened. Like I saw the DP at a film festival once and say, hey, yo, like I owe the PA on the one thing you did. Yeah, yeah. But um, no. But regardless, like I learned what a hot brick was. Right, right, right. And right. I got to talk with the lead actors on occasion. And the the thing that that one spoiled me on because it was my first set experience was. I was hearing about what like the schedule was gonna be like, and it was shot. It was like a casino scene. So they would they would go set up at a booth in the back, and all the lights are there. And I'm like trying to sneak a peek while I'm cleaning up water bottles. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I have no idea what's going on. And uh, they were they were wrapping like hours early in the production. Like they just they were they had, like two cameras. They they swoop in from the grip truck, camera truck. Yeah, they were quick with everything. Shoot, shoot, shoot. The yeah. director had a few words to say, and then they'd reshoot it, and then it was like a wrap. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, these guys moved quick. They yeah. Done early, like every day. This is great. Like, I can't believe productions moved this efficiently. Yeah. <laughs> and then you realize how much overtime there is in production. <laughs> no, and, and, well, and then I, I never, I didn't experience a set like that again for like ever. Like, Productions are normally trying to make the day. Yes. Productions are normally scrambling to figure out how we're going to make this work. And this one was like, they're wrapping early. I'm so curious why they didn't ever release the film. I heard the director was at fault. Like the movie was edited and done and the director had some, some final like bouts about like either how to release it or maybe the cut of it or mm. there was some sort of battle in deep post where the director denied to let it go out or something like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But, Damn. Yeah. But it was kind of cool. You know, one reason why I did not give up within this year-long process of editing with bated breath 
was because after I made that movie with Frankie, I shot another film. It's called Monstrosity. And never edited that. And still currently sits on that hard drive mm. as an unedited project. And the failure, and it's a personal failure, right? Like no one, no one really cares. Sure, sure. It's, it's only yeah, I care. Yeah. yeah. That failure is one reason why I kind of try to make this commitment to finishing projects, seeing it through. Like not giving up in this place of where I don't know I don't even know what my headspace was into not editing it but you know you think about like LA I feel like there's so many unedited projects so many shot projects that people just gave up halfway through that post post production of it yeah I hear about that a lot it's it kind of it's for the people who are going through and they have their reasons I no shade at them even either but I feel like one thing that I didn't consider when I was decided to not edit the project was taking away that opportunity of everyone that actually helped to make the movie. Mm-hmm. And like for one reason, bated breath really was something that I wanted to like see it through because we have a long list of crew that was that I like I asked personally to be there as a favor, please help me out in making this. And they don't see the end final product. It kinda like left me like cold no, for a for second. Sure, for sure. That's good. Yeah. I mean, that's what I realized when you said that director kind of was in the way of it, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Especially when you're asking for favors and stuff and people are working for lower rates and people are showing up just, yeah. just kind of for you to, to see help you and your dream through. Yeah. So then, yeah, there is this sort of uh, payback that you feel owed yeah. versus, versus maybe this guy or go. <laughs> was like oh everybody got paid everybody got you know it may be a little bit different there where everybody kind of if there was more monetary stuff you kind of but still are loose it's, it's to tough. that but it's tough as a creative to let people down yeah they they put themselves it's, out there we, for you. as a filmmakers we're creating a product and the crew that we have are those people that are i don't want to say like working in assembly line but they're there to like you know deliver and help deliver that product yeah. So it's and like everybody puts their own creative touch in their, they do. In their area. Intent, so, yeah. so it's, it's yeah. more nuanced than, like you said, the, the assembly line for sure, because it's not just a thing. It's like, oh, I made this thing to put, to, put mm-hmm. in, to help build this. Yeah. Um, which I actually wanted to ask too, because I feel like it's probably something you go through. Cause, I mean, I go through it a lot, and I don't talk to a lot of people about it, but. It's this inner accountability, again, it's accountability, (laughs) where I've had, uh, there's this thing that happens with creatives, when when you start out and you make your first short film and you put it out there, people are like, oh my gosh, you made a short film, we're all stoked for you, we know it's your dream, and there's like this whole attention to you that comes because... But then when you make the second one, it's like, oh, he's made one before. Yeah. And then your third one, it's like, oh, like, all right, cool. You're just doing this thing still. Yeah. <laughs> like the excitement kind of falls off. For sure. And it doesn't carry you like it used to. And it's, it falls on you to keep the excitement up. Yeah. And to yeah. keep the push going. Yeah. And I feel like <laughs> I've made so many short films. and So even when I get this feature done, the excitement, <laughs> the excitement's not really like, it's like, oh, everybody expected Eddie to get this done because yeah. Eddie always gets stuff done. Yeah, So yeah. what if it's a feature? It's still like just another Eddie project. Yeah. So it's kind of, I, I kind of, I don't know if people think that way, but I kind of receive it in that way. And 
I guess the question was going to be, how do you, do you, do you feel stuff like that too? Or do you find yourself having to push through to challenge yourself because other people around you already expect you to be doing that? If that makes sense. I got to say in, in, in the short term way of that, I've kind of thought about this question. Mm-hmm. It was Chris Baldwin. Yeah. I, I want to make something that Chris is really happy about. <laughs> Seriously, I feel like he's kind of like a hard person to try to impress mm-hmm. when it comes to it. So someone who I think is just so close to me in both the working world and the relationship world is that like if he actually believes that it's good, like it make that actually satisfies me. And that's just because I put value into him mm-hmm. to bring that out of me. Um, as far as like more of the most people like that, you know, they're they're excited when I did my first short and. It, now they're not as excited with the second or third. Um, I, I just feel like it's because we've established ourselves as a filmmaker that they just know that that's what we're doing. That's the job. Like, obviously, you're a filmmaker, so all you're going to do is keep creating content. <laughs> so it has put me into a place where I, I do tune that out. Um, but I what I am trying to do is put value into certain relationships that I really trust with them. Mm-hmm. And if they could give me a feedback of where it's positive and it's you know something that that like that that positive feedback like that or even constructive criticism but it will lead to a, you know a, a better product that's what fuels me the most for um, now for now yeah because that's that's still a conquerable objective too once once chris is like oh my gosh bated breath blew my mind and then who are you trying to impress now it's like, so right 100% um I think for us as creatives, like we should be obviously doing it for ourselves, but the idea that we're trying to create art and we're trying to express ourselves is to find relatability. And there's kind of authentic relatability, which is I think when we put value into someone and they do reciprocate it with us that we find it. And then there's also a pat on the back, um, which is I think what we get through like most people when we share it on Facebook well, or I mean, other that's, ways. That's, as, as humans, it is often, or even sometimes nice to hear like, that was great. Yeah. And I watched yeah. it and I loved what you did and I've been following you since the beginning. Yeah. And I'm still impressed with your growth. Like some bit of somebody that's been watching and keeping yeah, tabs. Yeah. Like it's nice to hear those things. 100%. And uh, I think those are the people who we should never let go, like should never be forgotten in a way. Like yeah. those are our saviors. You know, it's also those are like when, when uh, Tim Ferriss has a thing, like you don't need a million fans, you just need like a mm-hmm. thousand. Or in our case, a hundred, even <laughs> whatever. But <laughs> yeah, just as long as there's like that, like kind of loyalty For to sure. the work and all that, then um, fuck the rest. <laughs> yeah. So, I don't know. I don't. I, I don't know how much you. How much? For me, it's it's a big. Uh, it's a big thing that I feel like I always have to reconquer after each project. I'm like. Oh. All right, time to re-impress myself with my growth. Like, I can't just go and make another It's What's on the Inside with that kind of budget. It's like, that's not, I've already done it. Move forward, make something bigger. Mm-hmm. How do I impress myself? How do I make something that I'm going to be proud of? Like, that's kind of the, it's kind of where I'm at. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's hard to put all the weight on yourself. Yeah. Which I feel like is just the nature of the of the beast and the contract we've signed. But um. there's a slight depression that I feel after mm. either completing a music mm. video. Hundred percent. Like there's like a 
there's like this aggressive high of doing something every day to finish this goal. And then as soon as it's completed, you know, I've sat here, like literally, I've completed it right there at that table. It's not like right when I hit like export, there's like balloons going behind me and like there's like fireworks and shit congratulating me for completing it. I just realized that my room is still silent and that I'm no longer this putting this aggressive effort into doing a goal. And that actually ripples into like a depressive, very well, it's, like it's sad because, state. It's because in the moment, because we're living in the moment. And we're happy with the edit. Like, in the moment of the edit, you're just focused on that. On yeah. set, you're focused on that. Yeah. Like, it's life feels the best when you're in the moment doing something. For sure. just, like, focused on There's a mindfulness to it, right? Is yeah. that what you mean to it? Yeah. Yeah. So then, when it's gone and it's done, your life just loses meaning. And totally. You're like, what now? Yeah. So I, I get, no, I 100% get, like, I call it post-project depression. Yeah, um, there's David, his, his Instagram handle is Pony Smasher. He's the guy who directed Shazam and the Annabella movies. Okay. Um, he definitely has a, he has a YouTube channel where he does talk about his filmmaking process and all of that. Mm-hmm. Highly recommend it. Um, but he does, he does mention um, post-production depression. He also mentions depression in the midst of editing, too. Because you might notice something, and I got kind of, mm. I got, I got a little bit of depression during editing a bated breath when I saw that the movie was so long, and you know I had to cut it down. I don't know if you felt that when you saw it was like two hours, and then you were like, oh, I have to get it to like. No, I was stoked. Oh, you were juiced during that stoked. moment. Yeah, because I knew the objective was yeah. having more than I needed, and I knew I was gonna have to, like I totally. Wa- I was gonna be afraid if it was too short. Like I probably would have been like, oh my gosh. Got it, got it, okay. Yeah, but having more, I was... I would say you knew that, that because of your experience. Of, you've cre- I think you've created more than I've created, so you got to be able to get that intuitively more in you to know how you're heading and how you're going into the editing project with what to expect. I, not that I wanted the movie to be 25 minutes, but like when I was done, I was like, cool, it's done. Like I remember like exporting it out. And that's just, I think, like the beginner, the amateur version of me to be thinking like that. Um... Which then, obviously, because I had that expectation, caused me to go into depression. And I don't think that now because I had that depression. You know, I have like a better understanding to get more right, in, right, to get right. more into the to to go, to expect what you expected when you went into your project. Now is how I think I've now suited myself to go into it. Yeah, I mean, you still get depression after. So For sure, that doesn't, that doesn't <laughs> stop the depression. That goes with what you were saying about the mind, like the mindfulness and the like, the presentness that you feel when you're like either on set shooting it or editing it. And then, really, when it is done, you kind of do have that saying to yourself, what now? And I think that's what kind of creates you to get out of the mindfulness and yeah, you go yeah. into the futures, the past, the present. You start thinking of everything. Yeah. Yeah, I guess I was going to ask that next is what, what do you do to, to break the funk? But Run. I love running. Running will be a therapy was is another form of therapy for me. I'm a huge like, and I don't run for miles. Like um, I run for miles, but I don't run for time. So I'm like a long distance runner. You you go for distance. Yeah, like I would say five to six miles, or like that. That was like a marathon with the 10k that I or 15k that I did. But um, I like that because it allows me to do something mundane. Kind of, I think, in a yeah. way, of you, yeah. like how you're picking up trash. And it, it allows me to organize. No, for 100%. Yeah. Because, yeah, your focus is technically, yeah, you're, you're just running and you've got nothing else to focus on. So. Totally. Um, yeah. 
I, I, I love actually running after editing. It's like such yeah, a good release. Really, I run for time though, and I like to keep it short. Like, <laughs> I don't. I can't do the distance. Yeah. Um, so we're we're getting towards the end here. Yeah. I was. I don't know if you have any any big topics that we missed that you wanted to talk about, but I I, I have a little exercise for us if you wanna. Let me look at this. So like I even wrote down that you went to South Korea for a week. We were going to talk about that. I don't know if there was anything interesting from that experience. There was something interesting from that experience. Tell us about South Korea. Um, Why did you go? And how was that? Oh, I just had a great opportunity that my best friend from middle school is, is South Korean. And uh, he was going to go visit his family. And I had that opportunity to just pay for my flight yeah. and get that experience with him. And see his family and see his culture, all that. Um, where it ties in with film is the importance of taking that break. It was after literally that first week of coming back from that trip, I did not sleep. Um, and that was when I cut the movie from 25 minutes to 15 minutes. And before that trip is when I was in my depression phase mm. of needing to see how I could cut this movie down from 25 to 15 minutes. So you got, you got your time away from the edit. Yes. And you got a little, yeah, just that break that Sweet. within within one week of coming back, yeah. I had the movie cut down. Because your brain is processing multiple yeah. times. Yeah, and so that was one of the things when I went back. I was or when I came back, I was like traveling, or any just leaving the table, leaving the the computer, mm -hmm. is so important just creative creative wise. Um, so that was a good question. Bringing that up. Thanks for bringing that up. Yeah. So how was the actual being there? What What did you? That was. Have you been? Never been to South Korea. I've never been to South Korea. Um, that I can't really say if there was anything specific to it, except for the guy that I went with. He is one of my best best friends, like core brothers. I have to say, just because we were we hated each other in middle school, became friends later in high school, and then in college our relationship just blossomed into brothership. But. Um, it was really nothing that I got to say uh, added to it, ex added to my life uh, specifically, except for me and him getting closer in our relationship together. Um, like he's going through stuff with his dad right now, and and it was like New Year's, for instance, because that was when I was we were there on New Year's. We had plans to go like dancing with these girls and meet up with them. We got a bottle of wine and some pizza, and we stayed indoors uh, in the Airbnb, and that's where we spent our uh, our 2020, yeah. yeah, yeah, we were we were just in Korea in a, in a loft and had plans to do something crazy, and we decided to just leave it just meaningful conversations. Yeah, yeah. stick with the relationship. Yeah, yeah. So that was what that trip was overall. But yeah, yeah. Because I um, posted a bunch of cool pics, like you got. I don't, I yeah, tr okay. traveling comes with great production yeah. value. Because <laughs> I mean, those are those are areas that not many of us get to see. As far as like a, you know, people don't travel as much. Yeah, yeah. People who do travel don't often choose South Korea, so it's like. Kind of, yeah. It's like a, you know. Which I highly recommend, by the way. Like, it is definitely a place where I think they're more advanced than us, to be honest. Like. That they're in technology, in yeah, society, yeah. the way that I think they think. I mean, I think their government style is a little bit too strict, and they're not as free as us. But I feel like everyone there does seem like pretty happy, from what I've noticed. Yeah, what? just just from the experience. Yeah, we got to, we got to hang out with his um, his cousin and cousin in law, and they actually like 
you know, they, I got to fully see them, and they're, they're, uh, they just have one kid. They're like in their mid thirties right now, so they would say, I would say they're relatively close to our age compared to his parents are, and uh, he was very happy, like to be living in South Korea with his family and yeah, all that. Yeah. He would obviously, he, he was like, he's like, where do you live? And I like Sherman Oaks. He's like, is that close to Hollywood? And his eyes like yeah. lit up like when Hollywood was mentioned as like everyone does when no, they're not from sure. here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was very, he had a good job. Everything was great for him there. Great. Um, I did, I did, I looked, looked at my phone and I wanted to kind of talk oh. about, uh, I don't know how long you want to go. You want to keep talking? Yeah, go for it. Working for money, working for exposure, and then working for trade. Uh, I think that I learned that a little bit through you. Working for money versus exposure versus, versus trade. And I learned the trade aspect from you, I think. Because before that, I was just either thinking I need to work for monetary value or I need to work for an exposure on Instagram well, yeah, or something like, like that. We mentioned early, it's like developing relationships is the key. Yeah. It's not necessarily making the whatever for the day depending on what the project is and right, who's involved right. sometimes the value is in i gotta actually show this person i'm capable of, of these things and yeah be awesome and yeah and that's everything yeah and i feel like more specifically i feel like you built your crew for it's what it's not what it's on it's not what's on the inside it's what's on the inside. It's what's on the inside. <laughs> Sorry, I'm like slightly dyslexic to, to like I flip shit around. Yeah, you got to write the rest of the time. <laughs> I, I think what I learned from your set was how many people were working there for trade, essentially. Mm -hmm. Like I was, I mean, thank you for the generous pay you, you gave me also, by the way. But it, like, because I remember like we talked about it and I appreciate that, uh, getting your note. Um, but uh, nevertheless, I think what we were able to still work out was like a trade deal, and I kind of sensed that a lot of the people that you were, you had on set was also a trade deal, or at least it felt like you worked with them in the past, and then you were oh, able sure. to bring it over. And I think something to take away for like young filmmakers is that specifically, because I feel like we're all in this time of where we're going to be coming up together, and if there's no money involved and there's no fucking Instagram exposure involved, the most valuable thing are the craft that each person could exchange. And the relationship. It builds a relationship as a great side effect to it. But yeah, yeah. It, um, I think everyone who's trying to get into film should take advantage of that for sure. Yeah, it comes down to, I mean, it was already a thing I was doing before, but at Mark Duplass has the quote that I like to always talk about where he's like, there's no excuse to not always be making movies on the weekends with your friends. Yeah, you said that on set too, yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I always think about that. I'm like, dude, like we're right here right now, right. and we have friends that are actors that are just dying to act because nobody's acting right now. It's right, like, right. Why don't we just like, let's... Seize the opportunity. Let's, so and as an example would be like, I know you want to get some writing down on the paper, let's set a deadline, write the three-page script, let's shoot it, dude. And yeah. Like, yeah, I'll, I'll do sound and you yeah. can direct it. Like I don't care. You know, yeah, like, you direct. I appreciate just, this. Like, I'm, just, I'm gonna take you up on this. <laughs> like let's just you know, like that would, <laughs> that would be like the pitch. It's, you know, it's like, yeah, yeah. It's that easy. It's like all right, next weekend we're shooting, and I just make three pages and. Yeah, it it goes with our philosophy of trying to knock out that quantity to be able to build that intuitive integrity of knowing story and understanding the yeah, craft. Yeah, yeah, and then it, so the objective for you would be like all right. Getting the script done is already a win. 
Uh, and then there's probably something cinematic that you want to experiment with. with. Like, I really want this to play out mostly in a wide, and I sure, want sure. to fit a wide. You know, like, all right, that kind of stuff. Right. So, yeah. There's plenty of ways to make... Because, I mean, I still do it all the time. Like, all I've, I've done a couple of shorts during quarantine that have been, like, two-person crew, yeah. two-cast. Let's just go out to Burbank. Yeah, um, yeah. The Burbank forest thing, and then... I I am slowly coming out of my shell to wanting to execute it. I mean, more so this event of having this podcast with you right now is definitely a kickoff. I've been, you know, I like I've been seeing some points of my life as like chapters, and clearly we've all come to this chapter where we're all went under lockdown and we all have this. And as I said, it's kind of treated me well with getting a little bit more jobs, a little bit more than what I didn't have before lockdown. And so even this podcast happening right now with you is like this chapter of like, I want to start to do what we're talking about right after this because it's only going to be working in the chapter. To, to tie it all with how I think sometimes <laughs> yeah. is I think we all need to be writing our autobiography at the moment as we're living. Mm, diary style. Diary style. Kind of like I have the book right there by Marcus Aurelius called Meditations. It's on the, it's next to the window, right next to my oh. bed. Um, and that's, that's Marcus Aurelius' meditation. He was a Roman uh, ruler, and he kind of just wrote everything in. Or more familiarly, I don't know if you know, Robert Rodriguez, Rebel Without a Crew. Mm, I, haven't, he, I haven't read it. But uh, he, he, he has a diary of the movie he made, Elmar, Elmar Chachi. Mm. I don't know if I said that right either. But um, he has his pre-production to how he funded it. He has his production, and he has his post-production. He broke the book down into those, those mm. three categories. Mm. And it's all diary entries of the day, um, which is something really cool to read. But what I mean by autobiography, in a way, is that if we con continuously think about how our autobiography will be played out for ourselves, we could take better aim to carving our path on where we want to go. Right. Okay. Okay. You know what I mean? So I just love that. In my case, it's like after I had a podcast with Eddie, yeah. I like made. Uh, I wrote my no, feature film sure. script, putting it big right there. V, <laughs> <laughs> <Whoa>. do it. <laughs> so we'll see what happens. Accountability. Accountability, <laughs> which is why I said it on tape. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but as far as your initial question, uh, pay, exposure. Yeah. And what was the last one? Um, um, and it was trade, but I, I th yeah. I don't feel like I've ever worked for, I don't, for what I do. Exposure's never really been offered to me as an option. Or maybe I don't see or maybe yeah. or maybe if people do frame it as exposure, I reframe it as trade. Like it's kinda Sure. So I think um, my reason of exposure is I do videography work too, right? Yeah, like, and, then, and then you'd be like, Oh, I'm 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 shooting this particular person that's gonna put it out and therefore they'll see what I shot. Yeah, exactly. And they have like a, they have a high following mm -hmm. so you know, maybe two people will click on my profile. Yeah. I've never it's, been offered that. And I think director. as as a yeah, from like script script supervisor, I think it's uh, the same thing for you to be replacing the word exposure and trade. Um I think I, me just doing videography, I got to see it as either they're going to pay me for this or either they're going to tell me that they're going to promote it on Instagram and they have a high following and I just put it together like that. But then working with you brought in that idea of like how okay. trade is like an entire different avenue, better even than the fucking exposure. And sometimes it's even more valuable than money. Again, like you said, depending on I, the project. I always reframe, not into 
into like the trade mindset where I'm always thinking about, oh, like I'm, I'm working for money, but really I'm here because I want to be with these creatives. Yeah. It's not even about the money. It's just like I, I enjoy the people and I enjoy being on set. Right, I'm right. here to cultivate the relationship. And the yeah. money is just a bonus. Like that's kind of yeah. how I how I framed it. Yeah, um, and that's the I think the best way that I think every filmmaker needs to have a mindset that are like this. And I think we all develop our own mindset, mm-hmm. our own you know yours with the accountability. That's a mindset that you have, like consistency, another mindset that you have. That I think we all find our own version of what we fully believe is our um, our way to actually view the industry. To how we could see ourselves succeeding, we kind of we kind of have to see ourselves in it, mm-hmm. and I think uh, your way of like being able to reframe it, where you're putting money at a lower place and putting relationships at a higher place, and how we've been just talking, how everything's built on the relationship, mm-hmm. is what's going to let you leap into the next stage. That's the that's the plan. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, no, for sure. That's I mean that's. In a way, too, the only reason I operate in that way is because it's done great for me so far. And yeah, it's, it's worked. I, I enjoy the people that I get to meet. Yeah, the way you like, you uh, talking about just meeting people coming onto Cat's film yeah. when I was directing it, like that one project brought us here now. Exactly. Like it, it literally exactly. grew from that. Yeah, because I mean, I showed up not knowing anybody. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. knew nobody. Yeah. On that set, which was the case for men I mean it's the case most of the time right right so it's kind of like yeah you never know who you're gonna get <laughs> yeah which is cool um I well, mean yeah one, let's try to make this a speed round here speed round this is just one topic but okay. we'll kind of maybe te- peter off after this one but uh, I was curious about here I'll even uh, get a pen out so I can Jot your answer for future reference, just in case the answer changes. Okay. But I'm curious, because you you produce on occasion too. Yeah. So let's just let's think about it more as a director, but also like director producer. Okay. Um, let's rank the stages of production from least favorite to most favorite. I'm going to start, there's pre-pre, which is even before you start breaking down scripts or anything, it's like talking to people, getting stuff in the works. Pre-production is the breakdowns, getting the prep for the actual production. There's production, there's post with the edit, and ADR, and all that kind of stuff. And then there's post-post, where you get it out there into the world. Yeah, this like marketing distribution. Marketing distribution, getting reactions, pushing it, mm-hmm. like all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. there's those five phases of mm-hmm. a single production mm-hmm. and thinking about how much fun you have through each one i love pre-production I'd say start with your least favorite oh <laughs> my least favorite um my least favorite is principal production like principal photography the actual production the actual production is i think my least favorite so far I ha- like so far I, that's what i feel and i'm kind of going off that with how i feel at the end of the day essentially interesting yeah um pre pre-production is definitely my favorite and then post-production is my second favorite do you want me to go in order with like the five through one essentially when i rank these uh yeah go five through one so there's there's the post post and the pre pre too don't forget those mm-hmm. so you said your your bottom is production yeah 
bottomless production, and then I would say um, definitely the distribution and marketing follows right under that one. Is my least, is my second least post, favorite. Post. Yeah, post post. Um, and then I would say after before then I would say pre pre. And then post production, and then pre production. Okay. Do we have that? Is that all of it? Yeah. You enjoy pre the most. Yeah. And then post right after. It kind of makes sense. It kind of makes sense. Yeah. Because I, I hear, um, I, don't, I don't remember which director said it. I think I quoted them somewhere. But some directors hate production because it just gets, like, it's just the necessary part to get the assets in post. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like. The pre is the is the phase where you get to just daydream and like oh my gosh this is the plan, and then post is kind of like well I didn't get everything I wanted so it's got a little bit below that yeah so that that makes sense for me yeah I don't know what my ranking is you don't no. is this why you ask these questions for your I, own discovery <laughs> I didn't think this ahead of time either but I was just thinking about what you said I like production a lot more. I think production is probably my favorite aspect. Do you like script supervising? Yeah, I do like it. I, I like hate ADing. You hate ADing? And I think that that actually distinguishes mm. why we label with that phase a certain way that we both do. Okay. Like, I really don't like ADing. I think I'm good at ADing because... I could mold my. Yeah, it was the first thing. Like Mikey got me into it, and that was kind of why. I, like, and I take every job so seriously that I try to do my best and conquer it, and that's why I like it. But the stress, the um, there's like annoyance for it to me mm -hmm. on it. There's lack the lack of creativity to it. Mm -hmm. No, for sure. Um, but it, I, I guess to me, I was asking that to see like if you really like super, script supervising, it kind of also backs the idea of like why it's a little bit nicer to be on set <laughs> <laughs> well i mean even as as a because as, i was thinking more from your perspective as a director mm -hmm. like, i don't know if you feel the same at the end of the day as a director where you're kind of defeated and out of energy or if you're like stoked for the next day i don't know uh it really depends on how the day goes for how i feel yeah, at the end of the no, day sure. but to be more specific on the direct what i like about the directing aspect it's uh, more in the pre-production. I think my favorite is rehearsal. So that's actually oh, okay. like, like, so again, it falls into pre-production, yeah. but re rehearsal is, I think, the most that I feel connected to the directing job. Because um, then there's, just a, there's a lot that gets in the way once you head into production. Indeed. Like, and then yeah. that's, I think, why I don't like it. And I, I think I like the pre-production because you're right. It's very imaginative it's anything could be a possibility it's free it's and then post-production it's reality what did you get <laughs> yeah, yeah. and so uh the idea of production it's kind of like the middle ground of where it interrupt it interrupts the imagination and the reality <laughs> so it's 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 a little harder to to deal with yeah but i mean as a script supervisor too there is an element of creativity in that job as well which yeah. is why i enjoy it yeah because I'm base. I mean, as long as I'm directing on the side, yeah, I'm stoked to be a script supervisor. Yeah, I'm just like 
director light. Yeah, I also feel there's not a crazy high demand for script supervisors, uh, which means that I think you get more script supervising jobs. Or am I just completely I wrong about know. that? I don't know. Because again, going to like with more smaller productions, I know obviously we're talking big union productions. Yeah. Everyone has that, but smaller productions, some productions don't even know what a script supervisor is. Yeah. No, I mean, <laughs> I guess the issue with being a script supervisor is there's only a, like if you're camera department or AD department, at least you can be like a second AD on a thing, or you can be an AC or a second. Yeah, As you a could, script yes. supervisor. It's either you're the script supervisor. Totally. That's or you've that's. The job. Very much of what I actually meant. Um, I feel like as an AD, you could you could fill in other holes uh, of production, wear different hats of production, kind of still having a job and having it. But like right, right. as like a script supervisor, yeah, you are kind of tied into that one position. Yeah. You get your chair though. Sometimes. <laughs> Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. I guess I guess if I were to quickly rank, I'll say production is my favorite. Okay. I love. Because I, I mean, yeah, I love. Um, Putting the the trust and the collaboration and all the effort to the test. Like, yeah. Like, okay. Yes. Like, all right, yeah. I see that. You're my AD. I love seeing you do your thing. Yeah. Let's kill it today. Like, yeah. That, like that whole kind of thing is like, I love having the people around me, just doing what they love. Right. Right. Like is that that feeling to me is the best. Right. So I, that's my favorite. I think you do you get that because you work so hard in pre production that you on have to. on the day of production you like just stepping back off. and just seeing it all play. Yeah, exactly. yeah, I know what you mean about that. That does feel good. There was a moment of bated breath when I was seeing everyone work and I was like, what am I supposed to do right now? <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. So production is the most mm -hmm. fun. Um, I would even go to maybe it's. I'm almost thinking pre pre, like kind of developing it. Like I like that. scouting for like I like thinking about the possibility of working with people. Got it. Okay. And that's I mean that's one of the things I use Instagram for too. Is like I I follow a bunch of actors that I've never worked with before. Yeah. And I kind of like they, actors put out stuff all the time, and I'm like I'd be stoked to work with that actor. Yeah. That actor so funny or or whatever the thing is, and I just like have it in the back of my mind of like yeah. Oh, who can I over that or like. Or like you or whoever the, the case yeah. may be. Is I like thinking and chatting and finding something to grab. And, yeah, uh, you're very good in following up, texting, and like staying yeah, on yeah. top of communication. Like via, via telephone, essentially, which is, I think, pre-pre most of the time. Yeah, yeah. So I, I enjoy the, even the, yeah, the early ideas of what could be is exciting to me. And then probably pre and then post, and then post, post. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hate. I mean, I don't. Post, post is not. It's not our game. It's the whole. It's not the. It's no creativity. It's a whole different marketing team. field. Yeah. So us having to do it in these stages is kind of. Uh, it's hard, for sure. <laughs> no. Yeah. I. I mean. As much as we want people to see it, it's still hard. Like. Yeah. Why? Why I'm curious. Like. Like. Uh. Why? Why is post so close to? being second to least it's lonely again it's the opposite of production to me like i've all the decisions have been made and now it's kind of well at least in like it's what's on the inside um having to edit the feature myself you know like it's that's a lot to edit yes it is yeah and like i don't know i i, I guess maybe if i had an editor it'd be more enjoyable of an experience but uh 
I, I, I do think do, I do think that is the case. Who who did your sound by any chance? Did you yeah, did uh Miles do it? The post? Post sound. Uh it was um Mark Hensley. Which Got it. yeah, it's another guy I met through another film group that I helped out on Got some it. of his stuff. But yeah, no, he he does post sound mixing for a living, so what, gotta, was that like to me for me at least the post production where it's the most collaborative is when I'm working with the sound person no really uh, and where I feel like I am leaving that still we're still in post production but I'm leaving that lonely stage because I know what you mean about like no, being was, alone and editing it but it was nice to be able to communicate with somebody else like I mean because I had I mean Connor colored it and then I had Mark do the sound, and then I had Adam Galloway who composed the score. But like those, the the, it's not the kind of conversation collaboration that I'm that kind of really gets me going. It's like I don't know. It's it's a little bit more mechanical of like, all right, here's a situation with a phone. Can we just make sure this phone sounds like I don't. It sounds like it's coming it, through it, a phone it's, effect. It's not yeah, very I see what creative you mean. at that point. It's like oh, I don't know, just thank you for being awesome and doing your thing. Right. And I don't want to get in your way because I know you've, I, I've never worked with a post sound guy before like that. So it's yeah. like, sweet, like, dude, this sounds great. Like, yeah, yeah. It's not much that I felt I had to bring to the table. Right. But I'm sure I'll develop those skills as I go too. Yeah, I, I, I feel for my, I didn't bait a breath with the sound mix that we worked. His name is Nick Price. Amazing dude. Um, he created such an experience for me to where we were able to go through the film in a way of where I could be as hypercritical as I want to be. Mm-hmm. And he then would he then has a great way of filtering like my note to then giving me my options. Mm-hmm. And that became fun because like I yeah, could yeah. I could think like outside the box, I could think however way I want to think and then he gives me the scopes of what I what he could really do to get it as close as possible yeah, yeah. to it. Because you just got to be the director and state your opinions. And yeah. They do the, their best to give you what you want. Yeah. yeah. That does sound fun. It, it, and, that, and that's why I think my, my ranking kind of comes into that because that, this most recent experience kind of brought me into that space. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I guess also I get so eager on seeing stuff get done and get out. But I don't have I don't have patience for post-production. Sure. It's just like... Let's get this done. Yeah. Let's move on to the next thing. And, and like, you know, I've already lived this one. Like, I've lived it. I know what's a, what it's going to be. Can yeah. Just like, can we just see this get done? Do you like, not feel like there could be just possibilities that you if, haven't seen yet? If I had another, if I had somebody else editing my thing I could explore it with, then yes. Got it. But as, as the writer, director, producer, editor. Yeah, all of it, yeah. I'm just way too close to it that I... I I shot listed it specifically because I knew I was going to edit it. So right. I knew the edit even before I got to the edit. Right, right. And then I didn't give myself much flexibility within the edit. Right. So it's just like, this is what it is. Got it. Get feedback on it from people that I trust. Yeah. And then, and then tweak it from there. And I got ideas that I couldn't imagine. When uh, you were shooting like, it like or before. I've like seen myself. But um, yeah. I feel like if I had an editor... Or the luxury of paying an editor, I'd be, I'd be stoked to, to have yeah. that back and forth. And like, I, I think love it. that's why in in the real jobs, like the union jobs, like it all is broken down with everyone having a specific task. Because I think it creates a more fluid way of actually either feeling more creative, not feeling overwhelmed, 
kind of being able to, I think, um, have a collaboration with it. I, I do say in contrast of you, like beta breath took a long time because we were always sending it out. I was always running it with people getting their feedback as well. But, um, because I wasn't so attached to it as like the, you know, as, as everything, director, writer, right, producer, right. editor of it all, I was able to, I think, discover some more things uh, from it, from that. But yeah, man, it's crazy of how it all just kind of works out the way it does. I think most people, when they think of film, they think that like what they see on the screen was all planned out from the beginning. Mm-hmm. I think people lack the idea to understand that sometimes that wasn't even thought about until literally maybe moments before an export. Yeah, or... Right, right. The moments before the export, the moments before they actually shot it on the day. Yes. Like, yeah, yeah. Just the, it's it's, and I think uh, when you're doing it like how we are, I think that's why I think we see it as an art form. It's so free flowing for that reason of why films a medium for art. That I think people now who see it as entertainment, they just they just sit back, relax, and watch this movie. Yeah, they don't think about it. Yeah, as they should. I would love those are our people. <laughs> just keep not yeah, thinking yeah. about how we did it. <laughs> just watch it. Um, but I, it's becoming more evident as we're going through it of why this is an art form, I think. It's kind of something cool to notice. And I think with that, yeah. we'll close this out. Yeah. But yeah, we'll, uh, well, I'm excited to see what happens with your writing. I'm excited to see Thank you. what happens next with, with us in a collaboration sense. And, Absolutely. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll chat again soon, either on podcast or otherwise. And yeah, yeah and this is fun. Thank you for having me, Eddie. I appreciate it. All right. Cool. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs>